Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, September 27, 843-661-0937. Good morning, no house, no shot, Josh. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) Good morning, morning, Royal Rev of Radio. (laughs) Good morning. I actually thought to myself, how funny would it be if you said that this morning? But I didn't think you would. Really? Yeah. What do you mean you didn't think I would? I well, mainly because the listeners don't know the situation. But, but yeah, and they still don't. It's kind of an Fair inside enough. joke, and we'll leave it there. We'll leave it <laughs> too, soon, too, too soon. Too soon. Somewhat of an inside um, joke. Mm. I'll just say this: we're entertaining as, ourselves as this part of Josh's Great. compensation package. Housing is, is is something included, right? Or used to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now we've got an issue. Now we've got an issue that I don't have anything to do with. That's why I find humor. You just, in it. You just like stirring the. You know what? <laughs> I just think it's funny that you guys are scrambling around trying to figure out a an answer to this. Let Let me give you some comfort. You ready? Okay. The Royal Rev of Radio is on it. I mean, he made it clear to me yesterday that this is unacceptable, and and he will address <laughs> this in timely, in timely fashion. I have nothing to do with it, yeah. Josh. Your job is just to cause trouble, apparently, except to. Yeah, to stir up the pot and see if we can create a uh, a conversation about it. Um, 843-661-0937. If you'd like to contribute to Josh's housing uh, fund, we, we, are, we are welcoming contributions to get him off the street, back in a place um, to stay. Speaking of housing, someone texted me yesterday during the show about homelessness. And, you know, the um, we, we associate homelessness with, some of the major American cities, you know, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, um, Chicago. And it's somewhat of an epidemic in some of these major American cities. In fact, they have set aside certain government-owned properties for these tent villages and whatnot. Someone texted me yesterday. Uh, they live in Florence, work in Darlington, and out by 95. I don't go out by 95 much because I don't have any business to do out by out by 95. But somebody said that there was a, I mean, there's kind of a homeless encampment somewhere around one of those bridges, under one of those bridges. I, I would imagine law enforcement addresses that the best way they know how. But on one of these signs, one of these road signs that have legs, you know, they've got these aluminum legs and they're, what, six feet apart? I mean, these big signs, Fayetteville to the north, Savannah to the south. I mean, 95 is a well-traveled, extremely well-traveled um, major interstate in America Somebody had taken a bed sheet, maybe out of one of the hotels out there, may, maybe not, and had tied it on one end of the sign, one of the legs on the sign, and the other on the other leg of the sign, and they were sound asleep in a hammock as if they were in the Adirondack Mountains or, or hiking the Appalachian Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, they were, uh, you know, a stone's throw from one of the busiest interchange in all of they were at one of the busiest interchange a stone's throw from one of the busiest highways in all of America and this person told me they were as sleep as they could be i mean it was just just absolutely carefree and not worrying at all about what um going on around them around them was that's i don't want to live that way but that must be a pretty liberated life I mean, to, to, to find a bed sheet, tie one end of the sheet to a, to a you know, I mean, basically a street sign, uh, a marker sign, and another to the other, and just, you know, crawl in and go to sleep. That is, um remember I told you once, Reb, got, got a good buddy of mine, uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's older than I am, and he's been around a lot longer than I have, 
but he's one of the only people I know that was forced to get to know Steve Spurrier. Uh, because nobody knows Spurrier. I mean, Spurrier's a hard nut to crack and kind of walks to the beat of his own drum. We've had that conversation on the air before. But um, but he said, and, I, and I'll never forget this, because I asked in, in an indirect way, hey, what's Spurrier like? Because, you know, you hear all these things about how quirky and weird and difficult and complicated he is. And he told me, and I'll never forget, he said, you know how a lot of people say they don't care what other people think? But they really do. They just like saying they really don't care what other people think. I think he means it. I mean, I, <laughs> I think he genuinely. That's, that'd be easy to believe. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the few people that I think genuinely means he mm-hmm. doesn't much care what other people isn't worried. Well, if you're sleeping in a bed sheet on a hammock by the interstate, you and Steve Sprayer are two people that don't much care what, what other people think. 843-661-0937. We've got an economics class that'll begin at about 630-ish. Um, okay. It'll be Get very ready. complicated, very sophisticated. Take notes or anything? The, the, or? One of the. One of, one of the fun parts of this show is other than stirred up trouble and talking about internals at community broadcasters, and I'm an external force. <laughs> I mean, I'm here at 5. I leave here at about 1030-ish, and I'm out of here. You know, I don't have any responsibilities other than hosting this highly rated uh, morning radio show. <laughs> but, um, but I like to kind of just leave my mark on those who have to make the station run uh, 24 seven. The other thing I like doing very helpful. Thanks. Well, I mean, the, no, the, the, uh, and Josh admits this this morning. The other thing that I find humor is the way I say things can sometimes sound like I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I sound like I don't have a clue and I don't have a clue. Sometimes I sound like I don't have a clue, but I do. And, and yesterday toward the end of the show, when I began talking about the economy and revs, per, rev perks up like, I trust him on this. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know he says it in a different way, but I do find some of the um, some of the information he relays, articulates, I find it interesting. And I swear, I mean, the face the the face that revs make. I mean, if it were a, if if the face could speak, it would say, "I swear, I think he knows what he's talking about here." I mean, it, he doesn't say that. He doesn't verbalize that. But the look on his face was like this country blankety blank kind of sort of knows what he's talking about when we when we go down this road and i want to kind of um address a few economic issues i know it's the day of the debate we want to talk ukrainian funding and foreign policy and all these other sorts of things but we we had a conversation yesterday about the state of the economy um you know some of the folks on cnbc and bloomberg say it's fine you know the consumer still has you know reserve buying power and well i mean those folks have a lot at risk I mean, it, it's hard for other than the bulls, excuse me, the bears. It's hard for those who believe in the the future of the market, the future of the economy, and how much better or worse it'll be a year from now. But I mean, those folks, I don't want to say they have to pump sunshine, but to some degree, it's in their best interest uh, to pump sunshine. I'm not a sunshine pumper. I'm not a doom and gloomer. I'm kind of, as Limbaugh said, I try to be the mayor of Realville, and I see some significant problems out there that I think, at some point in time, the American public will be forced um, to deal with. So we're going to kind of travel down that road a little bit today. Are you going to bum me out? Well, I mean, it's very G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. I mean, it's not an economic dissertation. It, it would be more, um, this concerns me. This I'll, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I said, uh, do we have a call? We do. Okay, let's go to the phone. We have early call this morning, Michael in Johnsonville. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, morning, guys. Um I just wanted to touch base on something that I read uh, yesterday. You might be already seen it. Uh, it was on Fox News where um, they're trying to get President Biden 
um, that he's starting to wear some kind of special tennis shoes with a, a slip fall grip grip on the bottom to keep him from falling, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny to start with. But um, now they've actually the White House has come out and put a diagnosis on him with some kind of severe arthritis. Uh, condition in his back that's causing him to slip and fall. And I was just kind of thinking, wow, it's kind of weird how they just had a um, physician to check him and, you know, not too long ago and gave him a clean bill of health. And now all of a sudden he's got this major arthritis thing that's making him fall and everything. So I'm wondering if that's going to start setting up for an scapegoat for him and his, um, in his reelection campaign. Just uh, just throwing that out, seeing what you guys think. Talk with you guys later. Thank you. I don't know if you saw this or not, but when he attended the UAW auto strike, he didn't walk up the main stairs on their first one. They have like a short stairs. They, they, they go to kind of the belly of the aircraft, yep. I guess, where the cargo would go. I mean, it would be, I mean, if, if you and I flew commercial, we would go in the, I guess, the top of the plane. At the bottom of the plane, there's a lot of cargo area. Well, Air Force One, I mean, when the president goes, they carry a lot. But he's got an entourage and a lot of other ancillaries to go with him. And they're letting him now board Air Force One on the, I mean, it would be the short steps. I mean, he got a set of long steps to go to the, um, I, the, I don't want to say the residential quarters of Air Force One, but where, the, where, where he is conducting America's business uh, while he's traveling. And then you've got this, this set of stairs that's about a third as long and the last two times he's boarded Air Force One, um, they've let him go up these short stairs, and he still slipped. I mean, he didn't fall, but he still slipped. Yes, they're fitting him with some sort of orthopedic shoe that um, has a stickier grip on the bottom. They are uh, they, they formally released some diagnosis from a medical doctor that says he doesn't have dementia, he doesn't have cognitive decline or, or issues related to cognitive decline or not, but rather he's got some some uh, arthritic condition of his back. Um, we weren't told that when he was given a clean bill of health, you know, out of the, I mean, anybody knows the guy's in cognitive decline. I mean, I can't diagnose from afar, but it looks to me like, I mean, I've had friends who have had family members. I've had one family member, my wife's grandfather had Alzheimer's and we watched the deterioration and it's, I mean, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's not just the, you know, the, the physical skills, it's the mental acuity. It's the ability to think and, and communicate and, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot, but I, I, good Lord, forgive me for saying this in, in the weirdest way imaginable, there's some humor in what they say, you know, toward the end, when, when Alzheimer's becomes such a, uh, an effector on their, on their mental acuity, they say things that you kind of shake your head. Like my, my, my granddaddy would have never said um, that some people get mean and ornery. Some get a, a little bit, you know, uh, elusive. They just don't know where they are. They say these outrageous things, these out, these outlandish things. I don't know that we see Biden get to that point. I mean, I've told Rev he's going to say something one of these days. Well, I mean, he referred to LL Cool J as boy. I mean, if right. a Republican had referred to a black rapper as boy, I mean, can you imagine uh, the uproar? But he did that. I mean, I don't think Biden's a racist by any stretch, but but I think he's a man in significant cognitive decline. And he's a product of days gone by. And and I, I guess in his younger generation, calling an African-American boy what was kind of accepted. It's not accepted at all now. And if a Republican had called an African-American boy 
I mean, that there would be a big, big brouhaha uh, to follow. But once again, the media is an extension of the DNC. They're the propaganda arm of liberal America, so they're not going to give that story uh, the time of day. But I mean, I, I, I believe that if Biden now, now Ted Cruz is convinced that Michelle Obama is going to be the nominee. I don't know if you saw this or not, but he is uh, aggressively saying that, you know, it's not going to be Joe Biden. It's not going to be Gavin Newsom. It's not going to be RFK Jr. It's going to be, um, it's going to be uh, Michelle Obama. That's kind of interesting to me. And, and I'll level with you. I don't know that I want to run against an Obama again. I mean, they, they motivate certain forces that Joe Biden has not been able to. They, not, they, they probably motivate certain forces that Gavin Newsom would not be would not be able to, uh, to to motivate. So we'll see how this this plays itself out. But but you know, does Joe Biden have arthritis? I don't know. Is Joe Biden in serious cognitive decline? Yes. And the the the, the cognitive decline. I mean, the, the, the dementia, Alzheimer's. I don't know uh, what the issue is, but it's creating mental issues or mental problems, um, and now physical. And they've actually appointed a quasi task force to make sure he doesn't trip. I mean, it's almost like minesweepers. You know, you've got this advanced team that goes out ahead of the president and he moves pebbles and grains of sand and, you know, anything that may get in his way and, uh, and may trip him up. Uh, there's a drop cord over there. Get some duct tape and let's make sure, no, unplug it. I mean, they, we can't trust him to walk over, you know, a drop cord that's been duct taped. Um, when I think of drop cords, duct taped, I think of union and non-union. We're <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to hook up equipment or, or, or not hook up Told equipment. Story. But um, Biden said yesterday, this is kind of interesting. Uh, someone asked Biden, should the UAW employees get a 40% raise? And he looked real confused, but he said, yeah. You know, like, yeah. Uh, like, well, I don't know the question, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I've done some math on the 40% raise, and I've actually got here – in my hand, kind of a negotiating sheet between uh, the big three and the UAW. And I asked Rev this morning, where should America First Republicans be on this issue? I mean, there's no way you can agree. I mean, if you're an America Firster, because I've said I want America First to be what? Pro-worker. I mean, I want it to be right. a pro-worker right. um, party, pro-worker realignment in this uh, Republican Party, we've historically been known as one who sides with the corporations. Pro business, sure. Yeah, you, you got this, this, um, this, you know, this negotiation between uh, a corporation and its employees, and we've always historically sided with with the corporation. Where should America First be on the UAW um, negotiating with the Big Three? Um, I did find out yesterday that the UAW's president is basing the demand of a 40% pay raise on the fact that since COVID, the CEOs of these corporations have received about 40% raises in compensation, all three. And all three made over $20 million in salary, a composite package. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's uh, wages and benefit. That's how they, they describe it, wage and benefit packages north of $20 million dollars. Um, where should we America firsters kind of stake our, um, claim in this debate? Where should we plant our flag? Is it, I mean, I, I, I'll go on the record. I don't think America firsters should be in support of a 40% pay raise or a 32 work week that you get paid for 40 weeks. I mean, that's just asinine. That makes no sense. Uh, let's do this, Josh. Let's take a break. I'll come back. I want to walk through some of the numbers and some of the, um, so, so, some of the squabbles that the workers and the businesses 
or having uh, in, in some of these compensation packages. And then I want to go a little further down the economy in general. And let's let's together figure out what lies ahead. I said yesterday uh, in, in, in somewhat of a provocative way, I would probably rather have a Democrat as president for the next four years because I think the economy is that fragile. And Herbert Hoover won the presidency as a Republican in 1928. A Republican didn't win the White House for 20 years. Now, 16 of those were FDR, but that's a long time to not be in charge. And I'm afraid that whomever the president is in 2024 are going to make some pretty serious decisions about our economy that could punish the party in power for, you know, 16, 20, 24 years. Take a break. Back in a few. So where should America Firsters be in this dispute between labor and corporate America? Um, here's some of the realities. The UAW president is asking for a 40% pay raise. I mean, they're, they're asking for a lot of other. I mean, there, there's some negotiation. Let's look at this worksheet. Um, you know, temporaries, uh, wages, cost of living, um, tiered employees, job security, profit sharing, work-life balance, retirement. I mean, they're negotiating in several categories, but the biggest the, the biggest issue is the 40% wage increase and the 32-day, 32-hour work week. Uh, and the UAW basically says, we want to work 32 hours and get paid 40. Well, I mean, I'm animally opposed to that. I, I'm, I'm for the American worker. I'm an America firster. I want to see this platform or agenda or ideology be based on the betterment of the American worker. That's stealing. I mean, if you're asking for 40 hours of wage and you want to work 32 hours, that's eight hours of work you're getting paid for that you didn't put in at the factory. I mean, I'm not in any way, shape, or form for that. If I said I'm for that, my dad would come out of the grave and get me. I mean, if I said I'm for someone being paid for 40 hours despite only working 32, I'm convinced that at Woodside Memorial Cemetery in Pamplico, South Carolina, <laughs> there, there would be a, um, a thunderous um, exit. And then somebody would be knocking, what did you just say on the radio? Who told, who, I mean, I've raised you better than that. So, so the 40% wage increase is based on um, this, I don't know, Rev, an extrapolation of data that the, the UAW has done. And they're arguing that the CEO of GM has got a 40% pay raise. The CEO of Ford has got a 40% pay raise. And the other, what is Stellanus has got a 40% pay raise. And that's what the worker should get. Uh, in return. Now, now, here's where I think we can get a bit squishy. Is America Firsters supportive of a CEO making 600 times more than the hourly employee? I mean, would America workers be interested in offering up as a, a proposal, a resolution, some, um, some combination of, of uh, reprieve that says, okay, the worker's making X, the CEO can only make X times, you know, 300%, 400%, 500%. They're not doing it on percent, it's times. And, um, and I, you know, I've argued that businesses get in trouble when the rank-and-file worker makes X and the CEO makes, you know, X times 3,000%. I mean, I, I don't know what that number is, but is that where, is that a place, Rev, as an America firster, you're willing to negotiate? Yes. Would you limit CEO pay? Mm. Uh, see that's it makes me a little uneasy to to talk about it but i'd have to consider okay it. see and i would too in today's I mean, world so so that's on the table yeah so so as an america firster 
we would, I mean, you disagree. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want to make sure we agree here, mm-hmm. Josh. I don't want you to jump in. So, so the three of us would agree, no, on the 40-hour paycheck for 32 hours of work. That, that's crazy. No on a 40% pay raise. That's crazy. Okay, yeah, that's okay crazy. we agree to that because the 40% pay raise would do this. Um, I, went, I went back and looked at some numbers last night. Detroit wages and benefits per hour, the big three. You ready? It's about $70. That's with wage and benefit. It's about 70 bucks an hour. So if you work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, you know, several weeks paid vacation, it's $145,600 in wage and benefit. The, the uh, Tesla, and that's kind of where we're headed, right? I mean, we're, we're, the government's making the big three build electric cars. They're incentivizing people to buy electric cars. They've not incentivized enough yet because Tesla's still selling about 60% of all electric vehicles because they're cheaper. And they're cheaper because their um, wage and benefit plans are about $45 an hour. So they've got about 150000 excuse me, about $50,000 a year advantage in wage and benefit per employee. Some of the Asian manufacturers, Kia and Hyundai in particular, are about $55 an hour. So Tesla and the Asian manufacturers are pretty close to one another. Um, before the 40% ask, Detroit was $70 an hour. I think it's $68.70 an hour. I've seen it as low as 67 but I've seen it as high as 72 So I kind of rounded off for argument's sake and said $70 an hour is what the UAW workers are making with wage and, and benefits. So if you, if you give the 40% there to more competitive disadvantage and you're asking them to build a car that's going to be more expensive, um, less desirable, and requires fewer and fewer and fewer employees. Uh, most estimates I've read say that you can build, I mean, if we, if we agree that we're not going to build internal combustion engines any longer and it's going to be all EVs by the year 2035, then 40% of um, the auto workers are going to be without a job anyway because they're just not as complicated. It doesn't take as much manpower to build the EVs as it does uh, the ICEs. So I would be in favor as an America firster of striking against the government mandating we build a certain car. I mean, that, that, that would be my first prerequisite. I, I'm, I'm here in protest of the government ordering me to make this car over, over that car. I am in favor of the marketplace dictating when, where, how many, what per percentage of. So, so to me, you take the, I mean, that, that would be the central debate. I mean, that, that, that would be the issue I'm striking about. I'm striking against GM Ford and, um, is it is Chrysler owned by Stellantis? Is, is that how you say it? I mean, I, I, that name keeps coming up over and over and over. Did something happen that I didn't catch? I mean, it was, was Chrysler sold to a foreign um, auto manufacturer, and I didn't. I mean, I know Mercedes owns that, but is that the parent company of Mercedes? What, what, what is? Why is this name so prominent in this debate? I mean, I understand Ford GM. I mean, that's the legacy manufacturers of the U.S. auto industry. I don't understand the other. I mean, what's the backstory there, Rev? Do you know? Um, I'm looking it up here. Stellantis, a multinational automotive manufacturing corporation formed from the merger of Italian-American conglomerate Fiat and the French group PSA. Um, Stellantis, the fourth largest automaker by sales behind Toyota, Volkswagen, Hyundai. Okay. Um, so they're bigger than Ford or GM. Stellantis designs, manufactures, sells automobiles bearing 16 brands. Alfa Romeo, Chrysler is okay, one of Okay, there you go. Yeah. That, there is a, so Chrysler is now a subsidiary uh, of Stellantis. Okay. Um, and I knew there was some big deal with Fiat and Volkswagen. Yeah, and Dodge, all, you know. Fiat, Jeep. 
Big company. Huge yeah. company. Global. Peugeot. Yeah. Bigger Ram. than Ford or GM. I get it. Okay, yep. now. Uh, so, so so forget Chrysler. Thanks, Stellantis. Um, no longer Chrysler. It's now um, Stellantis. So the big three is now GM, Ford, and Stellantis. <laughs> so 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 the the strike needs to be. I mean, if we were if, if America Firsters were walking the picket line, our priority would be stop making a deal with the government. Don't give in to the government's demands. I mean, I understand the government's incentivizing, the government's mandating, you got emission standards and whatnot. We're balking at the emission standards because all this goes back to, and this is what I find so bizarre. The auto workers embraced Joe Biden yesterday, and it's his climate policies, his extreme climate policies that will eventually cost 40% of those auto workers their jobs. Now, now I don't know how many of those auto workers are Seinfeld watchers. I don't have any idea. Um, I mean, they, they're, they're marching now, and it's only about, what, 18% of the labor? That's about 16% of the labor force. I mean, we're still building Chryslers and Fords and, and GM product. We're just not building them at the rate. And some of these, um, some of these clustered in, industries are beginning to have some issues because – um, you know, their labor unions, some of that, you know, have got the people that make the seats and make the, the gas pedals and the brake pedals and the, I would say carburetors, but no more carburetors, no more fuel injectors any longer. Um, it's going to be a new sort of, of automotive experience, but I think that's where America firsters should be. The America firster could potentially say the CEOs make too much money. I mean, that's going to be weird for Republicans mm-hmm. because you're asking Republicans who believe in the free market to believe in the free market up until when? Up until $10 million a year? Up until $15 million a year? Up until $20 million a year? I mean, I looked this morning. The CEO of Ford, GM, and Stellantis all made um, yearly compensation packages of north of $20 million. It, it, are America Firsters going to be opposed to a CEO making north of $20 million. That's where the 40% number comes from. I mean, that's why the, the union boss is asking for our employees to be, you know, bonused or, or, or given a raise of 40% uh, because that's what the CEOs are making. And if the CEOs are making it, then the rank and file American uh, workers should make it. But I think, I mean, if Trump Trump's giving a speech tonight, right? I mean, we're having a debate of the other candidates. Donald Trump is going to address the UAW. I think Trump should say, you know, I'm with you on CEO pay. I mean, it's out of control, and, and we need to do something about that. Now, that's central planning. That's big government. That's J.D. Vance, right? What are we going to do as America Firsters when we get in charge of the government? Are we going to mandate that government work, excuse me, that auto manufacturer CEOs can only make so many times more than the average hourly employee? And I have no idea what that percentage needs to be or what the, the multiple needs to be or what that, you know, is based on. But right now, the UAW workers who are striking make on average $145,600 per year in wage and benefit. They're asking for a 40% raise that would bring what, north of $200,000. Um, know, Ford is offered 20%. I mean, Ford has come out the gate. We'll give you a 20% raise. They made some concessions on um, tiered employees. They made some concessions on uh, cost of living raises. Uh, there, there, there had to be some negotiation. The UAW is asking for triggers. Ford is the only company right now that has agreed to triggers. In other words, when the CPI, you know, when inflation gets rampant, the cost of living raise kicks in, 
uh, per contract. It's not a, you know, another negotiation on another day about cola raises. But, but I just think it's so interesting for us to put our thinking cap on as America Firsters. Not if you're not America Firster, this would be a boring uh, last 10 minutes of radio and next three hours of radio. But it's, um, but, but I think as America Firsters, here's an opportunity we have to declare our faith, to declare our path. Where do we stand? And Cheeto Jesus is speaking tonight. I mean, he largely speaks on behalf of America Firsters. What is he going to say? I think the two things he should say, the three things he should say, there is no way I would ever agree to 32 hours of work, 40 hours of pay. I mean, that's un-American. I, I just can't get there from here. I, I would never agree um, to force an auto manufacturer to build a car that the government wants because of extreme climate policies. I think there's points to be scored there. I mean, I, I, would, I would drill down in that as deep and hard as I could. You, you know why you're striking? Because you're afraid you're going to lose your job. You know what? You should strike. Because 40% of you are going to lose your job. So the 60% that maintain employment, you better get all you can and you better get it now. I mean, I understand that. I think that resonates. And, and I'm thinking about Michigan and the presidential campaign is what I'm really thinking about. Wisconsin has a lot of um, auto suppliers. It's, uh, it's across the border. And it's not the, um, I mean, it, it doesn't have the influence that Michigan does. But there are a lot of businesses in Wisconsin that provide supplies to the auto industry that directly affect how those communities live and and how they pay their bills and what sort of um what sort of budget they live under. But I think I think CEO pay is on the table. That's crazy for a conservative Republican to say, but I think CEO pay is on the table. I think um but but I think the main the main issue is you better fight and get everything you can because the Democrats' extreme climate policies are forcing you to build a car that Americans don't want and it's going to require anywhere near as much labor to build. That, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the, to me, that resonates more, more than anything. I mean, obviously there are a lot of other places you can, you can negotiate, but um, the guy that was here yesterday that walked up the baby steps at the back of the plane, I mean, that, that guy's the guy that wants to run 40 or, or wants to give 40% of you a pink slip and put you out of business. I mean, that, that, that to me is, um, now, I have no idea what Trump says tonight, but that's what extreme climate policy, 40% of you will not have a job and the CEO does make too much damn money. <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of where mm-hmm. I would, where I would hit and where I would land. We shall see how, um, how Trump goes about this job. Is there a call there? Okay. Yeah. Let's go to the phone. Matthew and Sherrod. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. How y'all doing? Good morning. Uh, talking about CEO pay. What I would say is if. You know, you was talking about the average. I would say not the average, but the lowest paid worker. If the lowest paid worker makes $15 an hour, then the CEO should make no more than 150 times that. I did the figures. If, if I'm right, that's somewhere around $9 million a year. If a man can't make it off $9 million a year, he's doing something wrong. He's, he's living too lavish a lifestyle. How did you come up with that number, or is that just some arbitrary number you made up, the 150 times number? Well, I kept hearing people say that they're making something like 300 times what we're making, what, what the average worker's making. That's about so right. They're making 300 times. And I'm going to tell you something else I did, too. I looked up the CEO pay, the big three versus BMW. Compare those salaries and see how they're doing. BMW CEO is not making near as much as those others. I think he made about half. I think he made about half. That's right. He made about 11 or $12 million. 
so if he can make it off of that, I mean, you look at all these celebrities, you know, these uh, NFL players. Yeah, there's some that's making boo coodles of money, but most of them can make it off a million dollars a year. I mean, a man, I can't speak for everybody. I can speak for myself. If I had $4 million right now, taxes paid and everything, I'm good for probably about the rest of my life. (laughs) The problem is they're living too too extravagant of a lifestyle. You look at somebody like Warren Buffett, he's got so much money, he'll never be able to spend it all. He's going to leave it to some charity, and the CEO or the top executives of that charity are going to take it and run through that money, and it's just going to get blown, just like our Congress is doing over and over again. But you believe, you believe as a fairly conservative American that, that we would buy into limiting what CEOs are able to make, running the company, and 20 25 $30, 35000000 million is just too much. Well, another thing I've done also is look back, if you would look right after the Second World War, and some of the uh, tax policies then, yes, I understand taxes. Is, there's no reason a CEO or any top executive should be paying a less percentage rate than I am. If I'm out there working, why are they getting away with essentially a less percentage in tax than I am? Well, a lot of their, so, a lot yeah, of their compensation, but a lot of their compensation, thank you for the call, appreciate it. Uh, a lot of the compensation is based on, you know, stock valuations. In other words, they're paid uh, part of their salary is stock options. They get the stock options at some point in time. They cash in the stock and they pay a uh, capital gains instead of an income. It's not an earned income, but rather in some cases it would be a long-term capital gain, short-term capital. It gets complicated from there. But um, but and if they do a good job, the stock is worth more. Well, you're right. I mean, and and probably one of the biggest issues in America, corporate in corporate America today, is the the viability. Uh, well, no, the success or failure of the CEO. It's not based on the long-term sustainability of the company, but rather it's quarter-by-quarter financial report and what Wall Street perceives that CEO to be doing or having done. Let's take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Coming from the homeless guy. We don't know what to make of that. Anyway, a couple of callers. A couple of callers held on. Let's be respectful or as respectful. We've already disrespected their time. Let's not do it any longer. Let's go to the phone. Jason and Marion. Hi. Thanks for holding on. You're on. Good morning there, fellas. Uh, Ken, to kind of go uh, along with your last segment there, um, talking about CEOs and making this much money, I'm sure we've all seen the videos where the little uh, headline says, um, company makes a bonus of $15 million, and here comes the boss in with a bunch of pizza, pizza for all the workers, you know, just trying to keep them satisfied just enough to, you know, keep them doing some work and this and that. Um, but I, I saw a video last night, and I, I didn't have time to do my homework and check the numbers out. And maybe Josh has seen this video because it was – I don't have TikTok, but somebody else shared it on a different platform. And it says we are living in what they call a silent depression. And if you take the income in 1930, that annual income was about $4,800. If you turn that into today's money, that's 85000 now, today, the annual income is about, I think they said about 60000 In 1930, the price of gas was $0.10, cents, and we all know what it is now. In 1930, the average, the average car was $800. The average car today is over $40,000. And in 1930, the average home was about $3,900. Now it's about 400 
And they were making this that, I mean, and nobody's like doing anything about this. And I was just blown away when I heard those numbers. And thank you, Jason. Well, I mean, well, I mean we, we live in a speculative economy. We've allowed everything to become a, a speculation class asset. And I mean, I, I'll get back to that in just a second because that we'll walk through this piece by piece, but we do eventually get to kind of a speculative economy and what things cost and why it's been so hard on average people making an average wage. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. So I'm thinking about this, how you limit CEOs. I knew I would lure you out. (laughs) I knew there was no way that you can remain silent if you were listening this morning. Yeah, well, so here's the deal. Instead of saying if you founded the company, how about this? If you want to have a publicly traded company and your CEO pay exceeds some metric of the average compensation of your employees, then the government hits you with a tax equivalent to what you should have lowered that CEO's pay by. So rather than saying you have to do it, you you don't have to lower your CEO's pay, but you're going to have to pay a penalty for it. Okay. You're going to have to pay the price for it. Uh, more of a carrot than a stick, but kind of like a carrot with a stick. But addressing um, the issue. Yes, and, and, and when you're publicly traded. If you're not publicly traded, if you're a private company, you're a closely held company, and you're not agreeing to be regulated by the SEC and by FINRA and by SIPC and all those other government agencies, fine. Pay your pay your CEO what you want. If you can hire people that will come work for your company, good luck to you. But if you want to be exchange traded, you want to be out here publicly, because if you think about it, usually when a when a founder takes their company public, that's their payoff. Correct. Right? So, so they get their payoff for, for founding the company. So you're not stifling – new businesses from entering the market anymore, you know, any, any of that kind of stuff. And you just, okay, if you want to pay your CEO $20 million, if you, you know, for every dollar over $10 million in your CEO's pay, you pay a tax equivalent dollar for dollar. So that it'd be, it'd be cheaper for the company just to not pay the CEO as much. But and you're, but you're willing, you're a conservative Republican you're willing to put that on the table in some way, shape, or form. Some way, shape, or okay, form. Okay, fair enough. But, I mean, but, I, fair enough. But, I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Larry. More of a more of a carrot than a stick. You got to incentivize it instead of demonize it. Okay. Well explained. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. And that's kind of what I'm arguing. I mean, I don't know where we go from here, but we're putting something on the table that we've historically shied away from. Right? We believe in the free market. I think there's somewhat of an evolution happening in, uh, and I don't want to speak for Larry, but I think Larry and I share uh, a curiosity of the economy. I mean, if Larry and I sat down and drank a beer, and we, we, we've had a meal together, and we talked about these sorts of things, and we agreed far more than we disagreed, but there's some nuanced disagreements we have. Um, I think we're beginning to question whether we've historically looked at capitalism as an idol or an economic theory. Capitalism is not an idol to be worshipped at the altar of. It's an economic theory. It's not perfect. That's why they call it a theory. I mean, it has a theory of allowing the free market to be unfettered and unencumbered and un, uh, you know, not not so controlled by these government apparatuses or or government agency. I get all that. I mean, that that's that's a theory, and I believe as much as I've ever believed in that theory. But but I wonder sometimes if I didn't 
begin to look at capitalism as somewhat of an idol. And, and I, you know, I, I just got unrealistic. And, and I don't know what, I mean, you know, Larry makes an interesting point, but there are a lot of ways to get there. And, and he's saying, let's not, I mean, what, what he's doing is he's, he's lessening, he's lightening the heavy hand of government. I mean, it doesn't word it's still government, but he's saying, yeah, but I'd rather do it this way. Then that's the only point I'm trying to make. Can we free market capitalists, conservative Republicans agree that CEOs make too much money? I mean, that's kind of what we're asking of ourselves. Um, you know, let, let, you can take the simple route. Um, a previous caller said that uh, he's done some research. Um, I'll ask you this. If the average wage and benefit package at, D- at Detroit, uh, talking about Ford and GM, forget Stellantis. I mean, that's one of these weird conglomerates. But Ford and GM, we know their names. We're very familiar with their uh, the legacy manufacturers that they are. Let's say that right now, the average wage benefits package of a Detroit auto worker is $145,600 a year. Should the CEO be allowed to make more than 100 times $145,600 a year? I'm asking, should the CEO be allowed to make more than $14.5 million or not? I mean, that, once again, I'm not doing it the way Larry said. I, and and I, I probably would be more in favor of, of Larry's um, way than this. But I'm just trying to... This is radio. I mean, I don't have an easel. I don't have a PowerPoint. I don't have all these visuals to try and lay out, you know, how we get from here to there. But I think we're agreeing that Donald Trump should, in some way, shape, or form, address CEO pay today. And the only reason CEO comes into the equation or CEO pay comes into the equation, the union bosses say, and my employees that I represent and lobby on behalf of deserve a 40% pay raise because that's what CEO pay has gone up. Um, since the government interjected all this cash and liquidity into the economy uh, pre-pandemic. So, so that's the argument uh, that's being made. And, and I think make that argument and make the other argument. The guy that was here yesterday, I mean, that's guy who has these extreme climate policies and those extreme climate policies that are forcing you to stop building the cars that Americans want and you enjoy building, but to build rather some, you know, uh, to, to participate in some government experience or experiment. Uh, of stop making one car that has served society well for many, many years and start making another car that we have a lot of questions about. 40% of you are going to lose your job being a part of a, a government experiment, whether you want to be a part of it or not. I mean, I think that's a winning hand. And and I don't know many people who believe CEOs are underpaid. I mean, if you ask the vast majority, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, should we pay CEOs of major American corporations more or less? I mean, that may be one of those 90-10 issues. I mean, 90% of American voters may say, we, we pay CEOs in America too much money. I mean, I know what Jamie Dimon makes. I know what Lloyd Blankfein, I know what the CEO of BlackRock and some of these other auto manufacturers and, and you know, in, industrial conglomerate. Uh, these guys are making 25, 30, 35, 40, 50, 60, $100 million. I mean, they're, they're CEOs in America today making $100 million a year when you include stock options. Now, now, give them a little credit. They're operating under uh, a set of circumstances that they didn't create. And, and it really goes back to a lot of the CEO pay. And the problem with CEO pay is CEOs are making decisions based on quarterly, uh, quarterly dividends and quarterly. What, what Wall Street thinks of me quarter by quarter takes precedent to, am I making the company better for the long haul? A CEO today very seldom thinks about the company's best interest over the long haul. 
how can I affect this this publicly traded company's stock price from this quarter to the next? Because that's why the shareholders will, you know, when we have proxy votes and who stays on the board and whatnot, that they will decide to keep me or not. I mean, if I become CEO and the, and the, uh, the stock's $80 a share, and I do all these wonderful things for the long-term benefit of the company, but the stock's $60 a share, guess what? I don't get to stay CEO long. I mean, I'm doing all of these great and wonderful things to make the company um, better over the long run. But Wall Street says, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? And the investors who say, hey, I invested a million dollars in your company, and that investment is now worth $700,000. You suck as a CEO. You see where I'm headed? So, so, so you know, CEOs operate under these, these kind of a weird dynamic of you're making decisions based on what it looks like three months from now, not 13 years uh, from now. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning, Williams. Hey, uh, my man, uh, Rev, I called you about a year and a half ago and asked you um, what Trump was doing for three and a half hours. You saw the interview with Cassidy Hubbard yesterday? I did not. Mark Mellis, Mark Mellis told, he told Cassidy Hub that he didn't want, Trump didn't want to do anything. He's sitting there watching it on TV. You understand? And um, basically, that's all I got to say. Thank you. Williams, thank you. Appreciate the call. I was going to ask Williams a question. He's gone, right? He's still there? Well, I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. What, what, what do you make of? I want to get your take on this because, I mean, I know what I make of it, but I want to hear what the other side thinks. And on Trump, we are one side or the other. When Trump was less popular and now indictments and, and felony charges have made him more popular, what, what do we make of that? Why is Trump more popular today than he's ever been despite having 91 felony charges and four indictments? What, what, what's kicking out there that we're missing? I think he's crazy because um. You think the American the people are crazy? Trump. Yeah, I think you're crazy, man. I'm the man. You can look at yourself. Mark Mellon say he didn't want to do anything, and Miss James in New York got him. Miss James in New York got him. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. So Trump's approvals. Went from 38 to 48 after 91 felony charges and four indictments. And Williams says the only reason is people are crazy. People are crazy. Well, I mean, I don't doubt that. Um, people are crazy. <laughs> but uh, I don't know that that is the reason Trump went from an approval of 38 to an approval of, of, uh, of 48. Let's, let's kind of I take. Guess when, you, when, you have a, when you have a terrible case of TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, you think you just can't understand why anybody likes Trump or would support him. And yeah. so anybody who likes him or support him, they're crazy to you because you don't get it. Let's let's stay in the vein of the economy because this is such an interesting um, debate. Trump will speak. Do we have another caller? Mm-hmm. Okay, I let's do. go to the phone. I'm sorry. Greg and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hello, Greg. You're on the air. Uh, thank you, guys. I'm kind of embarrassed to call in. I haven't really been listening to the dialogue much. Just caught a snippet of it. I'll just say uh, a couple things about Larry's call. Um, I would call him a neoclassical uh, uh philosophy of uh, uh, economics, but, uh, you know, I, it scares me to death to think that we would say to the government, we're going to give you permission to increase your taxes in this specific area and think that's all that they would do. And, 
you know, as I have listened to uh, many of the conversations that have been on here, I never thought that would be the direction that we would go in. So uh, I don't uh, disagree. Um, I'm an entrepreneur uh, at heart. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that's what capitalism is about, making money. But there's got to be this moral uh, element to it. And, you know, we have we've lost our civility as a nation. We've lost our moral code. And uh, to say to the government, we're going to give you permission to take more money from us. Uh, guys, I just can't agree. I think that's going the wrong way. Thank so, you, Greg. Appre- that, very, yeah. very well stated. And um, I agree with you and Larry. Yeah, <laughs> exactly what I was going mean, to say. I agree with Greg and Larry. And I think Larry would probably agree to some of what Greg said. And, and Greg said he agrees with some of what um, Larry said. Interesting word that Greg interjected, morality. Society cannot. I mean, it, th- there's no way to stop society in general from being greedy or fearful. I mean, that, that's the human emotional element. What, what is that? H- how does that influence the debate? Well, it does. I mean, it, you know, the government, I mean, the government will never, nor should it say, well, when we make these decisions, we got to do 70% financial and 30% morality and ethic. No, I disagree with that. I think it needs to be the 80 20. I mean, that, that's a matter of the heart. Right, the mind, the body, the soul. I mean, the um, you know, some CEOs I would imagine um, consider themselves to be stewards of that position, and morality and ethic is a big part of that. Others are cutthroat. I mean, you know, they're just one of the guys. Hey, look, it's not my job to be a moral arbiter. Not my job to be ethical. I mean, it's my job to follow the law and you know, stay in the guidelines of what tax law says and and corporate America. You know, what corporate law says, and we got all these lawyers to tell me what I can and cannot do. But it's not my job to make anybody's life any better. It's my job to run this company be as profitable as we possibly can. Let's ask this question. Josh, I'm going to get your answer here. You're a younger guy. You've not been as influenced by the world yet as Rev and I have. If if someone runs a business, a publicly traded company, and is and is and is responsible for what the shareholder value of that business is, can he consider ethics and morals? Yeah. How? I mean, if your job is to do nothing but drive profit, do nothing but generate more and more and more revenue, more and more and more margin. That's in your contract. Yeah, that's in your contract. You've, you, you, you've got, you have a duly sworn obligation, a contractual obligation to make this company as profitable as it possibly can be. Can you do that and maintain some degree of morality and ethics? Circumstantial. Well, I mean, and that's that's the answer. I don't know the answer to that question. I have no idea what the answer to that question is. But that's what we bump into, right? I mean, all of our lives we bump into that. Where does my obligation to succeed, you know, bump into my responsibility to my fellow man? The 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 moral ethical dilemma that that all of us navigate the best way we know how. And and I would never ever in a million years say, well, I know the answer to that question. I mean, I, I don't know any more about the answer to that question today than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and I won't know any with, with any more clarity what the answer to that question is. Uh, here, here's the weirdest answer imaginable. You ready? You do the best you can. You do the best you can to kind of balance what that response. Contractually, my job is to make as much money for that company and its shareholders as I possibly can. How do I honor that contractual obligation and balance ethics and morals, and and I guess you know the common good, the responsibility I have to my to my fellow man, 
that's I mean that that's a very complicated activity that people find themselves a part of, you know, day by day by day by day. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Terry in Florence. Good morning, Terry. You're on the air. Hey, Ken. Um, I just heard your question. That's the first thing I'd like to address about the morality of a CEO. Okay. So I work for an organization. We have about an $80 billion market cap. I think our CEO, last I looked, her compensation was about $15 million with stock and all the other things you're talking about. But on the morality clause, we work by a core values and one of those is always do the right thing. And I can tell you in our organization, that is our guiding light. That is how we go to market. That is how we treat our customers. That's everything we do. The other thing we have in there is our colleagues make the difference. And I've never worked for an organization that lives and dies by those values. And our CEO preaches them constantly and she lives by them. So it can be done and still operate a profitable, well-run company. So hopefully that answers one thought on that. And then going back to the caller that was talking about tax and CEO pay, and you mentioned free market economy, Republican GOP principles, conservative principles. I think whatever the free market will bear and whatever the shareholders and the board of directors will bear on a CEO's compensation based on what they provide in value should not be up for debate. That should be up for debate amongst internal to that organization. And if they're making $100 million, there better be a darn good reason why they're earning that much money. So those are my thoughts. Thank you. And those are very interesting and, and, and well-regarded thoughts. I mean, you know, it, I, I want to, this would be the perfect time to say again, I don't have the answer to this. I think it is a very stimulating, provocative question. And, and the reason I find it a bit stimulating, I'm one of you. I mean, I know what I've historically believed and, and some of the fundamental truths that I find uh, about the economy. And I wonder, um, I mean, America first is different. We would agree to that. I mean, America first is based on what? The American worker, right? I mean, it, what, is the, what, is the, what is the, why is America first an effective political movement? It has rallied workers around one another. I mean, the American working class justly or unjustly, believes they've not gotten their fair shake. Now, it's hard to argue that UAW workers have not gotten their fair shake, but the American worker, by and large, believes they've not gotten their fair shake. They've lost ground. And one of the reasons they've lost ground is political. Uh, NAFTA, GATT, TPP, globalism, interventionism, um, you know, corporate America lobbying the government to get favors and, and you know, pull up the ladder after they get this legislation uh, passed. Th those are complicated matters. And I think historically we've given kind of a bumper sticker answer, well, I trust the free market. I'm a capitalist. Well, and I think right now we're evolving into a, we find ourselves in a place where we can't answer the question with a bumper sticker. It's not good enough to say, I'm a capitalist. I trust the free market. What, what, what is a capitalist today? I mean, it, does a capitalist believe that the wealthiest 10 corporations in America have a right to spend $300 million lobbying the government? I mean, distorting and manipulating the marketplace? Is that capitalism? Do we have capitalism? I mean, if you're a capitalist now and you say, I trust capitalism, what does that mean? I mean, does capitalism, here's a better question, and we'll take our break, Josh. Does capitalism allow, does a free market allow a business with the means to influence government to such a degree some businesses have? 
Is that capitalism? Is that a free market? Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Okay. And, and I'm getting a lot of text here. And, and I want to say this. I appreciate the callers. I mean, this is an interesting topic. And we're doing talk radio a great service by callers who are of above average intellect calling in, having varying opinions on, um, you know, what they believe, what they perceive to be reality. Um, it's just kind of an interesting debate. And I, I want to say it again. This is food for thought. I mean, I certainly don't completely understand what the answer should be. And, and I'm not, I asked Rev during the break, and I'm responding to a text. Someone said, I didn't think we were going to ever support the government saying what a business can pay its, its chief operating officer, chief executive officer. Um, okay, should we allow the chief executive operator of that business to, or chief operating, chief executive officer of that business to spend $100 million lobbying government? What would that CEO make? if not monkeying around with capitalism. I mean, we're saying that we don't want to dictate what the CEO makes because we're free market enthusiasts and we don't believe in the heavy hand of government, but the CEO has employed a team of lobbyists to go to Washington to do what? Make sure the marketplace is fair and equitable Hmm. or to make sure he's creating advantages. I mean, why do you lobby the government? You lobby the government to get things you want. So what would that CEO, let's say a CEO is making $20 million a year. What would that CEO make if he unsuccessfully lobbied government and didn't get some of these things that give them competitive advantages in the marketplace? So we're going back a step further now. We're not going forward. We're going back. You got CEO pay. And should the government influence CEO pay in any way, shape, or form? Well, it kind of already is, right? I mean, when a business lobbies government, they're lobbying to get a competitive advantage. By getting that competitive advantage, they get more profitable. By that profit and margin, they're allowed to pay the CEO more money. So we're already in the business of CEO pay, right? I mean, Amazon yeah, spent, we, we said last week, Amazon spent, what, what $100 million lobbying government? $100 million lobbying government over the last, I think, three or four years? So, so do we believe the CEO of Amazon is making X number of dollars without any sort of government assistance or, or, or you know, interference. It, you can't have it both ways. I mean, you can't lobby the government to create advantages in the marketplace. I mean, the Constitution affords you that right. I mean, the, you know, the Roberts Court said a, a corporation's a person, and, you, you know, they have the right to petition government. So when a corporation hires Dave Baker and pays him a lot of money to go to Washington— to make sure he gets something done on their behalf to give them a competitive advantage, that makes them more likely to be profitable. That creates a a higher degree of margin and revenue for the CEO, right? And his payment is based on performance of company. So we're already in the business of manipulating or distorting CEO pay. So, So for those who say, well, I'm not in the business. I don't want government to get involved in what a CEO can or cannot make. We're already doing that. I mean, we're letting businesses bribe government. I mean, I've said it before in the in the Fetterman. You said bribe. Well, I mean, that's what it is. It's bribery. I mean, it, it, lobbying. T- tell me the difference in lobbying and bribing. It, it, when the Fetterman wardrobe issue came up, I remember thinking to myself, this would be a good time to change the rules of decorum and let's mandate of every senator and House member that they dress like a NASCAR driver. I mean, I know Napa sponsors Chase Elliott. <laughs> I knew Budweiser sponsored Dale Earnhardt Put Jr. Put their sponsors on their, sure, their, their outfit. Sure, spon- huh? yeah, yeah. Who, who's working for Pfizer up here, man? 
I mean, who's doing BlackRock's bidding up here? Who's working on behalf of Vanguard? Who's carrying the water for the automakers? Who's doing all this work for EV manufacturers? I mean, for the government to say, out with the old, in with the new, out with the internal combustion engine, in with the EV, who's getting paid to do that? So, so I think it's a bit naive to say that we're not in the business, nor do we want to be in the business, of government intervening in the affairs of the private sector. We're already so far down that road. It's unbelievable. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Good morning, Joe. You're on. Uh, good morning, guys. I think what usually happens is government chooses to intervene once we reach a, a tipping point that is determined to be a crisis. For example, uh, until the 1960s, government was all about the ends justifying the means until uh, the, the hippies kind of uh, drew attention to the fact that we were polluting the air and water. And so then there were some clean air and water acts. And what happened with ethics is things were kind of the Wild West until the 1980s when Enron, primarily Tyco, MCI, a lot of these guys went so far as to, uh, you know, be extremely unethical. And therefore, the government stepped in and created uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. And as a result, most organizations now have a published code of ethics, and they, they make people sign uh, an understanding of that. They, they punish and reward that. And it even translates down to the university. I, I teach organizational behavior and leadership. And in the last 20 years, we have act, uh, added ethics as one of our mission statements, along with analytical communication, globalization, we now teach ethics in every single course, and we actually test the students upon their exit interview. We test them on how much they have uh, absorbed the concept of ethical corporate behavior, and we compare that to what it was when they came in as freshmen. So, you know, uh, I know, un unfortunately, a lot of time, you know, with 9-11, the government gets involved. Uh, you know, after after the horse is out the barn. But, uh, you know, I think if in the future we, we reach some crisis point where the, the CEO pay, pay is just so excessive, um, and if there's enough of a societal uh, uproar, then they may finally get involved on that topic as well. So uh, that that's kind of... Well, what, Joe, what let I'm, me stop you there. I want to get your take on this. Is it ethical or moral to pay a CEO... $100 million a year. You know, I, I guess that kind of depends on, uh, you know, what what the society thinks. So, so there's not a clear answer. I mean, that your answer is the right answer. There's not a clear answer to that. No, it, it depends. But, it, but if it, you know, if it got to be outrageous in the eyes of the shareholders, it's not going to be until someone, you know, cares enough to make a fuss. Uh, you know, and, and that's always the way it is. People don't have a lot of common sense. When they're backed into a corner, they have no other options. They kind of have to deal with it. Would you agree that, I mean, do you agree with my analysis that the majority of CEOs are not making decisions based on the long-term sustainability or prosperity of the company, but rather what Wall Street thinks about it the next quarter? Uh, I would agree because most of their compensation packages are tied to short term performance okay would you agree okay if we agree to that would you agree that the likelihood of unethical immoral behavior is 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 going to ha it's going to happen more consistently when a ceo is ju is judged 
quarter by quarter than over the long haul what he's doing for the best interest of the company. You would agree that when people make the decision uh, based on what the shareholder or, or Wall Street thinks of them three, you're, lick, you're, you're, you're more likely to get a less moral or ethical decision made by a CEO. Yes, especially okay. since the, the consequences and punishment is really not even a deterrent. I mean, most of these guys who get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, they still get a golden parachute, you know. Well, and, so- and, and Joe, most of the companies, and you probably read this as I do. I mean, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. Goldman's always paying a fight, you know, a $200 million fine. And, and I'll tell you what Goldman has decided. I mean, and I'm not picking on Goldman. I mean, they're one of the big players in that world. But I'll read a story that Goldman paid a $100 million fine to the FEC or some sort of the SEC. I'm sorry. And, um, and I'm saying to myself, yeah, but they probably made $400 million in profit. It was probably worth them rolling the dice. And, and you know, yeah. kind of I'm taking advantage of their interpretation of what the rules or, or statute said. So, yeah, they paid $200 million, but they probably brought in an extra $400 million in revenue and made 60% margins on that. In other words, it, it, was, it, was a, it was better to the bottom line for them to be immoral and unethical despite getting caught with their hands in the cookie jar, as you say, and having to pay a big fine. That, that's right, because the return on investment is worth it. And um, they just treat it as a cost of doing business. You know, uh, for years, retailers have just factored in a 10% cost of pilferage into their margin. They, they can't stop it. Of course, it's probably higher now with what they're doing out west. But, yeah, they just figure it's a cost of doing business, and it's not really a deterrent. And it won't be a deterrent until the government, uh, in, you know, based on maybe societal reaction, make it um, sufficiently severe that it's no longer a good ROI. Well explained. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate the call. Okay, Josh and Rev, you ready? I mean, you're, you're my case study. So here we go. Um, I just gave an interesting example, and I knew we'd get there. So somebody in a corner office at Goldman decides to interpret the laws to their advantage. There's some gray there. They do something that adds... $300 million to the bottom line. They know that's a pretty loose interpretation of what the law says, but it generates X number of revenue. They make a margin off that revenue. Somebody in that office tells the CEO, the likely penalty for us doing this is $200 million. And the CEO says, how much money do we make? $300 million. Do it. Is that ethical or moral? Is that capitalism? Is that the free market? I mean, is that too much government intervention, too little government intervention? I mean, I, I'm convinced that happens a lot in some of these high-flying financial it's institutions. It's a calculation. How sure. much is the cost of doing business, and, right? And then they've determined that by, by, their interpret, by their interpreting the law that way, they can do it. But, but if they interpret and believe that, okay, I do believe that this the law gives us leeway to but, do but this. But the laws are, I mean, why do we have lawyers? Right. Right. To, to I mean, figure it out, argue If it. everybody interpreted the law the same way, right. there wouldn't be any lawyers in America. But if they know, hey, this is absolutely against the, the law, the written law, the spirit of the law, do it anyway, that's where you kind of cross the I'll line. I'll give you an maybe. answer. In a recent negotiation I was involved in, I'll tell you, I got some commercial property with partners, and we're arguing over a contract. And and the guy on the other side of the table, and we weren't, I mean, we weren't, I mean, it was a, it was a respectful disagreement. But the guy said, well, the contract says, and I'm kind of a smart bud, and I said, well, there are contract lawyers on every street corner in America. 
I mean, I can find somebody that interprets the contract different than you interpret uh, the verbatim of the of the contract. So, so I go back to the moral and ethical dilemma that people find themselves in over and over and over again. If you believe that you can generate three hundred million dollars in profit by you know kind of taking advantage of the interpretation that some of your legal team. I'll tell you this, is it ethical or moral to tell your legal team, here's how I interpret it. I need you to interpret it the same way I do. <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. And out of that comes a, um, I mean, you, you make $300 million, you're fined $200 million by the government, you're still up $100 million. I, I, where, where's the ethic and moral in that? I mean, I, I'm not saying I know exactly where that, that gray area ends and the black and white start. I mean, I'm not, th- these are just principled debates that I think COs find themselves in, and that's why they make the big bucks. I mean, that's why they should make 100 times more than the average employee. That's, that's my number anyway, but I'm half communist. I am convinced really? beyond a shadow of a doubt, and I pledge loyalty to the Socialist Conservative Party. I am a, liberta- I'm a card-carrying libertarian socialist or socialist libertarian. What does that mean? It depends on what day it is right. and what side of the, the table issue. I'm on. Yeah, and, and what, what the issues are. Who's paying me to say what? <laughs> Take a break. You Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Wednesday morning. And we're having kind of a different um, go at it this morning than we historically do. It's normally politics 101. I mean, this is politics, but it's the economy. It's capitalism. It's, uh, you know, a, uh, I think we heard somebody refer to someone else as a neoclassical liberal, um, <laughs> which is not a bad thing in the traditional historical sense to call someone a, a neoclassical liberal. That would be um, someone who believes the economy should be liberated from government influence. I was just thinking uh, during the break that we're, what, halfway through the show this morning. We really haven't talked about the Republican presidential debate that's tonight. Uh, also, the fact that our commander-in-chief typically is now tripping up and down the short steps of Air Force One. Let him go on the kitty steps so we don't have to go up and down the, uh, the, the, the real steps that presidents historically have gone up and down. No, the, it is intertwined to the debate. Because Donald Trump, the maybe or uh, let's say it, I mean the, the inevitable nominee of the Republican Party is going to be Donald Trump, and he's going to address the United Auto Workers tonight. And we began the show this morning at six oh five talking about what should Trump say to the auto workers if 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 the Republican Party has historically been, um, and I think we're in somewhat of an evolution. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I may be going a bit too far when I say. We've historically looked at capitalism as an idol and maybe not an economic theory. I mean, capitalism is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's a theory that requires what? The participation of capitalists. And guess what capitalists can become? They can become greedy or they can become fearful. Um, That's the human emotion interjected into um, the the financial realities of uh, the country. But one, two places that I think Trump can make some hay is, and, and I think it's, it's, we're in an evolution of becoming a pro-worker party. I mean, the Trump movement, the Trump phenomenon is predicated on a lot of people who don't ascribe to a necessary political ideology, but they believe the, the American working class has lost ground. I mean, in essence, that, that's kind of what um, they believe, that they, that they're not sure what NAFTA is, they don't understand TPP or GATT. Some guy on the radio said globalism. Uh, they're like, okay, I mean, I, I, all I know is this. 
my paycheck used to go a lot further than it does today. Um, the house that I wanted to buy is three times what it was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and there's another story we'll do here, another show we'll do on allowing Shell to become a speculative asset class has ruined um, the likelihood of the American dream for pretty much a generation. Um, but that's a story and, and subject for another day. So what I'm arguing is as, as, as Donald Trump addresses the UAW membership and the, the you know, workers in general, I think he's got to talk about CEO pay. And the reason that the United Auto Workers president is asking for a 40% pay raise is that's the percentage that CEO pay has increased uh, over the long run. 40% CEO pay increase. We believe the rank and file workers deserve exactly what they get. Now, now once again, the Detroit auto workers are some of the most highly paid members of the American working class. The, um, the average auto worker in Detroit makes with hourly wage and benefits about $70 an hour. So they're making, uh, with, with, with salary and wages, benefit and everything, they're making about $145,000 a year. Um, Tesla is about $45 an hour. So there's a competitive advantage. Um, so you can't give workers a 40% pay raise. Um, but that doesn't make you anti-worker. But that's absurd to believe that the workers building cars in America deserve a 40% pay increase. Nor do they deserve to get paid 40 hours for working 32. I think Trump can say that. I mean, everybody in America is in a labor union. The majority of Americans aren't in unions, and they're not sympathetic to someone wanting 40 hours of pay to get 32. But I think the majority of Americans believe that CEOs make too much money. How much should they make? How do we get to a more moral and ethical place? I don't know that people have, have thought through that, but if you asked 10 Americans, do, do, does the CEO at Goldman make too much does a CEO at J.P. Morgan, a CEO at Ford and GM, did they make too much? How much did they make? Well, they make between twenty and forty million dollars. Hell yeah, they make too much. Nobody needs to make twenty or thirty or forty million dollars a year. Now, now, you know, there's a there's a lot of different ways to get to a debate, um, but but I'm just kind of kicking the door down and saying CEOs make too much money. I mean, I think Trump can say that today. I think as he says, the American, the auto workers in Detroit don't deserve a 40% pay raise, but the CEOs make too much money. I mean, they make far more than they, than they deserve. And then you kind of nibble around and see exactly where, where we come now. Now, I believe the, the best talking point Trump can use the, today when he addresses the auto workers or, or, or workers in general is when he says, the guy that was here yesterday brings about extreme climate policies that are going to force a, a transition from one kind of car to another, and 40% of you are going to lose your job anyway. I mean, that, that, the guy that was marching with you yesterday for 12 minutes, and it's not a march with him, it's a shuffle. I mean, the, the guy that shuffled along with you on the picket line for 12 minutes yesterday is going to be responsible for 40% of you losing your job because he's not going to let the market dictate what people want to drive and how much they're willing to pay. He's going to basically make the government the instrument that forces the transition from one mode of transportation um, to another. So, so those are the talking points, and it, and, and it kind of evolved into the, the, the moral and ethics of business and what should a CEO make. And, and some of you are saying, well, the government doesn't need to be in the business of deciding what a CEO makes. Well, philosophically, I'll agree with you, but, but my argument is the government's already in the business of what a CEO makes. 
Because if you are a CEO of a Fortune 100 company and you send lobbyists to Washington to gain distinct advantages in the marketplace, I mean, you're fighting for your company to generate more revenue and a larger margin. I mean, that's, I mean, your, your, your pay is going to be based on how much money the business makes, the performance of the business from quarter to quarter. So, so aren't we already in the business of allowing government to dictate the terms and conditions of what a CEO makes? It, it, it's a bit naive to say, well, I don't want some government agency saying a CEO can't make more than 100 times the, you know, what the average hourly employee makes. I don't either. But, but, but I'm not going to be naive enough to say that's just not the role of government. Government should never be in the business of, of determining how profitable or not a business can become. Well, government's already in the business of determining how profitable. I mean, do you, do you believe Pfizer's last three quarters were, were organically generated? Of course not. I mean, Pfizer lobbied the government. Pfizer, I would argue, was complicit in misleading the American public along with government agencies uh, about the safety and efficacy and effectiveness of, of the vaccine. I mean, isn't that government meddling in the affairs of the private sector? So, so to suggest that, well, I don't want that because that, that, that kind of creeps into socialism. Well, I mean, companies spend enormous amounts of money lobbying government. They're not lobbying government to make sure the, 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 the playing field is level. They're lobbying government to create distinct advantages and competitive advantages for them in that marketplace. Therefore, they become more profitable. CEO has paid more money, and the government had a hand in that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. You're on. Yeah, good morning, guys. We, we keep trying to reinvent the wheel. I mean, the wheel's been invented. This all started back, remember when Chrysler, in about 1979, was getting ready to go under the CEO between the increase in fuel and them trying to increase their market share overseas and in the States. And they just bungled it all up because the CEO didn't know what the hell he was doing, but he wasn't making that much. So they tapped Lee Iacocca who, you know, invented the Mustang and worked for Ford to take over Chrysler and got like a $1.5 billion bailout to rebuild the company. And he agreed to go to work for a dollar a year. Now, once that was all turned around and they started looking at things and said, okay, we need somebody that's smart enough to run these large companies because especially the, the auto plants were our main war fighting capabilities they build our tanks artillery all that during times of war so we needed to keep those jobs and keep them productive so they established then that okay you can have a certain amount of pay and then we'll give you as you grow the the value of the company we'll give you a certain amount of shares that are kind of vested like we vest in a 401k. In other words, you can't cash them out next year. You have to wait six to 10 years. That way, if the company grows and prospers, then those shares are yours to keep. And by the way, if you don't do good, you're fired. So we've gone through this, 
and now it's gotten to a, a point where it's inflated and we're having the same discussion again. You know, just like yesterday, you were talking about the taxes. You know, there's we, we've gone through that as conservatives. If you go back and look at the history of taxes in the United States, we have always taken in between 17 at time of peace and 21 at time of war. And why is that? Because Art Laffer came up with the Laffer curve to where at zero, you collect nothing. At 100%, you collect nothing because nobody's going to work and give all their pay to the government. So you find that sweet spot to get you the 17 to 20% and you make the federal government live on that. We had 90% income tax rates. But nobody paid it because of all the write-offs and everything else. So you set the tax rate to where the government can can receive between 17 and 21 percent of GDP. Right now, the government is spending like our GDP is 35 trillion dollars when it's only 27 trillion. So all these different things together, like. They're cutting out the oil drilling and the royalties they get for that. That goes to the treasury. So you're you're losing all of that money. And if you notice, we had five over five trillion in twenty two, I believe. You'll find out this year we probably didn't make it to five trillion because the problem with Democrats is they they've already added over five hundred billion dollars in cost and regulation to the American business. See, that's on top of their taxes. They add cost of business, doing business, to the businesses, which takes out productivity. So we need to stop inventing the wheel and make it better instead of stripping the rubber and the air out of it and going back to steel. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hi, you're on. Uh, good morning, fellas. Um, well, first, first, what the government could do is realistically take the inflation rate and report it properly. For 40 years, if you've been tamping down the inflation rate on their side, they've been doing it on purpose because nobody wants to have a large inflation rate. Well, that's compounded the problem that we see in pay today is the inflation rate is not true. It, it's not been true for 40 years. But you have to have some sort of a law, some sort of a bill that says this is what we're going to go by, period. We're going to accurately report their inflation rate every year. Then businesses adjust their pay based on the inflation rate. So I think that's a start. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. I mean, there's no doubt they misrepresented uh, inflation. I'll give an example of government intervention in, in a real and profound way distorting the marketplace. I, I'll use, I mean, I, 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 I've argued this before. I was with a group yesterday in the real estate business, and they were asking me my opinions. W one, of the, one of the parts of this job I enjoy, and I understand that I have a, a unique delivery. I mean, I'm not crazy. I don't sound like an economist. I don't sound like someone who knows what he's talking about. 
but but I've been in business all of my adult life. I learned a lot the hard way. Uh, experience is expensive, uh, you might say. But one of the one of the enjoyments of this show is when I say things in the G.I. Joe Kung Fu grip way with a southern and rural accent. And my esteemed colleague, the Royal Rev of Radio, looks at me. I mean, he may be Rev. Rev is trying to keep a lot of other stations on the on the air. So sometimes he's very in tune with what I'm saying, and other times he's in tune, but he's he's multitasking. And it's funny when it's funny to me. It may not be funny to anybody else, but it's humorous to me when when I say something about the economy, and he kind of stops what he's doing and looks at me like. Yeah, I want to hear this because he normally knows what he's talking about when he goes down down this road. Mm-hmm. And we began talking yesterday about the economy, and I think the word I used was a Fed-oriented economy. It's not about conservative policy or liberal policy. Um, you know, Joe's romancing about, you know, not reinventing the wheel and what we did with Chrysler and, and hired Iacocca to run a car company because he knew how to run a car company, and it was fairly paid. Um, based on what he did. But the government intervened in the affairs of Chrysler because they didn't want Chrysler to go bust and, and out of business. Um, and it was different then than it is now. But but we live in a Fed-oriented economy. So we're talking about what CEOs should make. And, and we're talking about workers struggling. Well, well, one of the reasons, and Ashley brought it up, one of the reasons workers feel like they're struggling is they've been told that inflation's not rampant when it is. I mean, if you think about it, if the federal government has the obligation to fund Social Security and Social Security raise or based on consumer price index, you know, some of the um, some of the measures of inflation, the government doesn't want to give you more money. But if they accurately judged inflation and based Social Security raises on that, they, they would be forced to. So, so they improperly measure inflation to save face, to make sure that, you know, Social Security stays solvent at least for another. I mean, they can mislead the public about how irresponsible they've been in spending. Inflation and the measurement of inflation is absolutely insanity. But, you know, the American people, what do we say about voters? Don't underestimate their intelligence, but don't overestimate um, their interest. So I want to give an example, a real-time, real-life example of where we are today and, and why I am somewhat concerned. The Fed... And the government turned, it, I told Rev this morning before the show started, if Rev had invested in the dot-com bubble and he loses, he deserves to lose. He was a speculator. He made a conscious decision to invest in companies that looked like they were going to recreate the economy. And the dot-com bubble and bursting happened and people lost enormous amounts of money. Some made money. They got in and got out at the right time. Others lost enormous amounts of money, but it was a speculative bubble, but but nobody got hurt that didn't deserve to get hurt. I mean, I would imagine 401ks that were invested in that. I mean, there, but but you know, you sign over a contract saying, hey, I trust you to, to manage my money. What we've done in America today is we've allowed an essential to become a speculative asset class. What is that essential? Um, food and shelter, right? Shelter in particular. I mean, we've allowed shelter the house, the home, to become a speculative asset. And that's insanity. I mean, it's insane uh, But because, once again, non-speculators get caught up in a speculative bubble and homes become unaffordable. So, so a lot of the distress that the working class has is the cost of buying a home. Why has this home gone up 300%? I mean, you know, they're, 
that there are certain areas in America today you you can't reason it, you can't rationalize, you can't understand it. So 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 I can hear somebody. Well, I mean that's the market. I mean the market's dictating what a home is worth. Did you know that the Fed owns two and a half trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities? What would that house be worth if those markets were placed on the free market? Excuse me, if those mortgages. You see, hold on to that. I, I want to come back to that. That's an important debate, and that's what I mean. The, the shelter cannot be a speculative asset class in a normal economy. It just can't. But by the Fed buying two and a half trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities, the federal government, in its infinite wisdom, said, "Forget the dot-com bubble. Let, let's make housing an asset class, and let's allow speculators to dictate the terms and conditions of what pricing and financing." will be. Take a break. Back in a few moments. Well, the phones have been on fire this morning, or as they say in Tennessee, they've been on fire uh, this morning. <laughs> Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. We've talked a lot today about President Biden um, showing solidarity with the picketing UAW workers. Donald Trump will address um, them tonight instead of participating in the RNC uh, debate. Jeff, um, President Biden was there yesterday. Trump speaks today. What's the skinny? Uh, well, you, yeah, uh, President Biden flanked by UAW leadership at that GM warehouse uh, in Van Buren Township, telling telling striking workers that the big three automakers should pay up, uh, that they, they should be able to bargain for a 40% pay hike. Uh, UAW is also looking for a four-day work week and other benefits and job protections as the big three automakers continue to push back on those demands. And... Um, it's interesting because the president's visit to the picket line was basically an offensive move for the the Biden White House that uh, had to play catch up to President Trump's planned visit there. Uh, this is about votes. I mean, I'm a, on the news consumer side, this is about votes. This is about politics uh, and 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 trying to 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 win over these 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 people in Michigan. These these you know blue collar. Uh, workers, these union workers, uh, you remember back in, in, in 2016, Trump secured about 43% of the union vote, helping them win states like Michigan. So um, this is largely uh, political. Uh, but, the, you, you know, what we're going to hear from Trump tonight is, is, is a different story. He's going to support UAW workers, but he's going to tell them that it doesn't matter what kind of races you get, your jobs are going to be gone. Um, in, in, you know, in, in relation to, you know, Biden's EV mandate, uh, saying that it's going to kill the auto industry, uh, and cost countless jobs. He's going to be in Clinton Township tonight speaking, uh, to auto parts, uh, at an auto parts supplier called Drake, in, uh, Drake Enterprises. Um, uh, you know, in UAW President Sean Fain, uh, who doesn't like Trump, Trump doesn't like him, but he has also previously said that the argument that EVs are bad is an attractive one for many of his members. And he warned Biden that he shouldn't forget about that piece of, of the debate, though the president didn't mention uh, his EV agenda or even attempt to sell it to UAW workers. He didn't address record inflation or commitments to the UAW that jobs will not be eliminated by this green energy agenda and we've already seen thousands of jobs go away because of it uh and then you've got four gm and stellantis saying look we've had to invest billions of dollars in, into the government's force push to electric um that coupled with the the 40 percent pay hike uh other benefits and job protections we we just we can't afford to do both so the stalemate continues it's day 13 of the strike 
with about 20,000 workers off the job in multiple states. Very well explained. Jeff, thanks for your time. Have a great day, sir. You bet. You too. That's kind of an interesting reporter's take on on the strike. Is someone on the phone? Yes. Okay, let's go there. Hey, Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for holding on. Hey, good morning. Uh, this has been one of the best shows I've ever heard from y'all. It's been a lot of fun for me. Uh, I think Rev's mad with me because we're not talking <laughs> about Biden's falling up the stairs. We're not talking about $250,000 making its way into wire transfer. We're not talking about the, the redundancy of talk radio. But but this is a central issue to the political debate in America today. And, and I think it's very important. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Well, can I add maybe a little libertarian slam? Of course you can. I would expect right. you to. Well, no. Um, remember a few years ago during one of our many recent financial crises when major corporations were deemed too big to fail um, and the government came in and bailed out a lot of your you know, financial-type corporations. I think it was during the housing crisis, maybe 2008. But too big to fail was the buzzword. We pumped billions of dollars into saving these companies that were too big to fail, and CEOs rewarded themselves with million-dollar bonuses. Now, as I understand capitalism, capitalism is supposed to work based on competition. Um, if somebody has a good idea and really goes, somebody else is going to improve on it or get a competing business, and which will, you know, benefit the consumer ultimately now what we're doing um just like that guy the pharma bro you know that bought a bunch of orphan drugs jacked the price up over 700 percent well he did his due diligence to his company they made plenty of money and he thus rewarded himself but he turned out to be a total crook i think what's happened is we've gotten so proprietary now that there is no competition that aspect of capitalism has pretty much been neutered by government regulations, and the consumer is now paying the price through higher prices, uncontrollable CEO salaries, and people are just stuck. Rick, is it anti-capitalist to allow mergers, consolidations? I mean, you, you would, you and I would, you and I would agree that in the best interest of the consumer, it's better to have ten airlines to choose from to fly to New York instead of one or two or three. We, we would agree to that. I think well, we would agree. And, you, and you, I, I mean, I'm with you on some of the libertarian philosophy, but 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 I, I've had to try to, you know, work in government. I've been an elected official. I've served at the local exactly. and state level, so I've tried to help make the sausage and put some of my well, philosophical bents aside. But but is it is it is it fair also to say that the government has been responsible for allowing or creating soil conditions that made consolidation much easier, that in turn disadvantages the consumer. Hey, I agree. And I, look, I'm a total hypocrite. I'm a self-proclaimed libertarian who, you know, is a state employee for 30 years. So, well, I mean, I get it. I mean, I understand it, but you, but you, 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 you honestly confront that. I mean, I think we're all hypocrites. Some just accept that, you know, and, well, and try to do the best they can totally to, to navigate. If you 100% buy into any philosophy, it becomes a suicide pact very quickly. Sure, sure. No question about it. You know, but right now, I just see everything is so proprietary. And on the other hand, do we want people to be able to steal intellectual property? But we have made it now so proprietary that competition is impossible in a lot of cases. Well said. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. You know, and I, I could go down this road. Um, 
the, the, the great misnomer in the relationship business has with government is the request or the Rev and Josh would believe that every lobbyist who goes to Washington has the deregulator's mindset. I mean, I want more freedoms. I want more flexibility. I want more discretion. That's not always the case. I mean, if you're one of these big, big, humongous companies with, with enormous revenues and profits, sometimes you may want to complicate the competition's um, concept of business. In other words, if, if Josh, owned, let's say Rev owns, I mean, I'll pick on a company. Let's say Rev owns Home Depot or Lowe's. And Josh owns three family-owned um, lumber businesses. And jo- Rev has hundreds of thousands of employees and billions of dollars in revenue. Josh has 35 employees and $6.25 million in revenue. Rev goes to Washington and wants to complicate things because he knows Josh can exist in a complicated, regulated world. More paperwork to be done. More regulations to abide by. More government edicts or orders coming down Josh's way. And the next thing you know, you know what Josh says? Instead of fighting all these regulations and edicts and orders, I'm selling Home Depot. I mean, I'm just getting out. You know, I'll, I'll just shut shop to see if I can sell it for pennies on the dollar. Uh, so, so there's a great, you, you got to understand that, that sometimes regulation and complications are good for people like the big businesses that have staff and legal teams and, and uh, you know, accountants. And, and Josh has a, a lawyer that he hires every now and then when he has an issue. Josh has an accountant that does some of the paperwork for him. Rev has a team of accountants in-house, team of lawyers in-house. They're not, they're not intimidated by the complexities of regulation. In fact, they consider the price of doing business. But if they can create more consolidation, if they can provide the consumer with fewer choices, guess what the likelihood the consumer ends up at Lowe's or Home Depot? And I'm just using, I'm not picking on those companies, but I'm sure they've done some of that. Um, Walmart, Amazon would be another. We did a big bit a week or so ago on Walmart and Amazon. Um, do you believe that every time Walmart or Amazon go to Washington, they're going in the name of deregulation and, and making it less complex? Sometimes they go to make it more complex, and they're asking for another layer of regulation because they know their peers and competitors can't exist in that world. They can't hire a team of accountants. They can't hire a team uh, of, of, of attorneys. They they. they they just kind of throw the towel in at some point in time. I can't make it in this world. It's just too complicated. It's too expensive to do business. It squeezes my margins. It's not worth it. I'm selling my business and go to work at Home Depot or Lowe's. I mean, I understand the business. They're going to provide me with a, you know, a good opportunity to make a good income and, and health care. And re- I mean, that, that's the nature. So, so, so I think we need to understand that, that lobbyists don't always go to Washington requesting things be deregulated and, uh, and made more simple. I want to go back to uh, what we discussed a bit ago, and that is th- this, this, this concept or this idea that shelter, food and shelter, I mean, those are essentials, right? I mean, you got to have something to eat. you got to have somewhere to stay. Of course. I mean, we've accepted that as American normalcies. Uh, Americans, not many Americans are hungry, and not many Americans are sleeping in the street. I mean, I know there's more now than ever. I mean, I understand tent cities and, and some of these liberally run um, you know, uh, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, um, they've normalized some of that craziness, but the majority of those people just choose to not work. I mean, they choose to not be productive. They choose, 
Um, I mean, you know, and we can talk addiction and depression and uh, some of the mental illnesses that I think we have done a lousy job. And some of these people are just lazy. I mean, they'd rather sleep in a tent than go to work. They make that conscious um, decision. But but we have we have made housing, shelter, food, shelter. We have made shelter a speculative asset class in America. And I asked Rev during the break, I said, Rev, look up what the total mortgage debt in America is today. And it's about 10 or 11 or $12 trillion. Somewhere thereabout. What would the housing market, what would the sheltering part of our economy look like if the Fed didn't have 25% of all mortgage debt on their balance sheet? I mean, what, what, if, the, what if the federal government didn't have, um, I mean, what if it weren't the holder of 20, now the Fed's losing about $100 million a quarter right now because they're paying more out. When, when, when Goldman and J.P. Morgan and Bank of America park money on the Fed, uh, they're paying an interest rate that is higher than what they're being paid or what they're collecting on. So right now for the first time, I think the first time in Fed history, they're losing money month over month, and they lost about $100 billion in the last 60 to 90 days because, once again, they're paying. Remember Silicon Valley Bank? I mean, they kind of cut. They didn't hedge their bets oh, yeah. as well as they as they should have. So, um, uh, you know, the the interest to pay back on reserve deposits is larger than um, the the seven. I think it's about eight trillion dollar portfolio they have that includes bonds and about two and a half trillion dollars of mortgage backed securities. So, so the Fed has actively created an asset class that speculation is allowed in something as essential as shelter. And we're, and we're arguing the merits of capitalism. We are in a quasi-socialist country. I mean, I know we romance and we nostalgically talk about capitalism. We're not a capitalist country. We've allowed government to intervene in so many affairs of the private sector that it's 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 kind of a quasi it's a hybrid, I mean it's it's a government run capitalist economy or at least a government manipulated capitalist economy. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I mean a class like this would normally cost you thousands of dollars. <laughs> I mean ha- having having a uh, a high level having a a a teacher who understands the economy at a high level mm-hmm. and, and him being willing to sit down and engage an audience. I mean, that's, that's normally an expensive proposition, but you folks have been able to do it by enduring long breaks at the end and beginning of each, of each hour. I was just thinking about how generous you yeah. are, that, how lucky we are. That's a pittance to pay for oh, the yes. education you're acquiring here on wake up Carolina mm-hmm. this morning. Our next lucky listener caller is Nick in Lexington. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the classroom, Nick. <laughs> I feel so honored. <laughs> I detect a bit of sarcasm, but continue, sir. Well, I don't want you to forget, I've said this a couple times. Uh, I don't know if I've heard, because I've been in and out today, if you talked about part of the housing problem is how cheap money was. So I did some back of the napkin, just quick numbers. A $500,000, $550,000 house. At two percent was a two thousand dollar payment. At seven percent, it's thirty six hundred. At seven percent, a two thousand dollar payment is three hundred thousand. 
And most people buy bought payments. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sure, so I do. Now we have people who think they got a $550,000 house. And they got a three hundred thousand dollar house. But but Nick, you would agree, and and I'm doing this to provoke. I mean, I'm arguing that shelter by government edict has become a speculative class. It's an asset class now that people speculate on. The interest rate kind of exacerbated that. I mean, in other words, if I'm a speculator, and I and I got to roll the dice at thirty six hundred a month, I'm less inclined. But if I can roll the dice at two grand, I'm a player. And, and whether I live at home or not, I begin speculating on things. And, and you combine that with, I mean, there's no doubt that muted interest rates, I mean, unusually low interest rates for an extended period of time led to rampant speculation and a false sense of what something is worth. But, but we also began changing fundamentals of the mortgage business. In other words, when, when houses began to appreciate and people couldn't put 20% down, the government became lax in enforcement of uh, what, what the bank will or will not do. So the bank says today, Baker, you know, I'll, find, I'll keep the note if you can put 20% down. But if you can't, I'm going to have to sell that note to uh, Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae. And next thing you know, we wake up one morning and they own 25% of all the mortgages and finances and uh, home financing in America. That is a significant distortion of the marketplace and, and allows for even more speculation. So the fairer question is, what is that home really worth? I mean, is it, is it worth a value on 3% interest? Is it worth a value at 7% interest? Is it worth a value with all the mortgage debt in America not being under the um, the control of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac government-run organization? I don't know the answer to that. But, but I do know that shelter became a, a speculative asset class. And, and one of these days, and I don't know when, one of these days, that rooster is going to come home to roost. I would think so, but here's my question: As being in the home building business, all I have is every realtor telling me there's no, there's no inventory. I can sell anything you can build for under five hundred thousand in three days. I hear the same. I mean, I hear the exact same thing. In fact, I'm mean, a full disclosure. I am a partner. In a, in, a, in a company that is building 12 homes as we speak. We're building three, 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 and three. So, so I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting here saying I think the thing's going to blow all to hell. But, but, but I'm also, <laughs> you know, arguing with a builder about how much we can build per square foot and sell per square foot. I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I mean, I got a buddy who built a, a, basically a 28 by 56, a trailer. He stick built a trailer on a dirt road in Kershaw County and got 256 and I'm just like are you kidding me no garage no dining room just a three bedroom two bath house you know 1400 square feet for 256 but but Nick, let, uh, let me ask you this and this is this is so non philosophical but let me ask you this what what are the other options i mean if you're a builder and you're a um, you're a developer. What what are the if you don't build and don't develop? What are the what what is Plan B? I mean, well, you, well, you, you accept some of these realities as headwinds. I accept some of these realities as headwinds. I am nervous as can be about what it looks like down the road. But but what does a builder do? What does a developer do? I mean, do you stop building and start develop stop developing and go work at Carowinds? See, see, I, I don't know because I don't know if you believe in the supply and demand curve. 
with everybody's house thinking that they have a $300,000 house and they're thinking it's a $500,000 house, so they're not selling. Is it just because of lack of supply? I mean, you know, if you if you throttle supply, demand, I mean, the price goes up, right? If you believe in the supply-demand curve. True. Saying, yeah, as but, but, as there's no, but as soon that's where that's where I'm at. Well, I mean, but 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 here and and, and and here's where I think our when we look at the macro, and you're a smart guy, and I'm somewhat intelligent. But when we look at the macro, we get concerned. But but I think when you dig a little bit, and and, and we've had a lot of conversation internally with our team about this. For the last five years, South Carolina's been one of the four fastest growing states in America. I mean that that right. that is that that is a big deal. I would feel a lot more nervous and have a lot more reservation if I were in a state not in the top ten fastest growing states in America. I guess what I'm saying is some some of the macroeconomic realities may we may be a bit insulated because we're a state that people are moving to, and, and that's going to you know that's going to I mean there's going to be a demand for housing when people want to live in South Carolina. There's going to be a demand for houses in South Carolina. A plus side, the plus side of migration. Correct. A winner and a loser. We happen to be winning on that side. And I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, <laughs> I just, you know, you, you, I am, I am befuddled by our situation. Like, how can you be in a recession and have inflation? You know, those kinds of things that you know but 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 nick i want to counsel you for a second if anybody says they know they're lying and i've said this for two years when we decided to intervene in such a dramatic way and and we're talking about since 2008 interest rates have been at about zero and the fed lending rate has been somewhere between zero and one percent uh you know that that sets the mortgage rate that sets the short term i mean construction notes are financed at a certain at a certain number so we've had 15 years of basically no finance charge at all. I mean, 1% to 2%, 2 to 3%, um, and all of a sudden that's resetting itself. But but at the same, at the back end of that, just, just I mean, I think the Fed made a horrible mistake in leaving interest rates as low as they did for as long as they did. And then I could go into detail about, you know, so, some of the uh, some of the metrics that I believe um, will create eventual problems but but the 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 back of napkin the bumper sticker the Fed kept two rates or kept rates too low for too long. On the back end of that fifteen years, they injected forty percent new liquidity into the economy. So if, if if somebody says, "Well, I know how this plays out," run for the hills, get as far away from that person as you can, because there's no precedent in human history of interest rates being that low for that long. And then an injection of liquidity that that is un. I mean, it's it, no 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 country in human history has come close to creating and adding that much liquidity into an economy. So so for you to say I don't know, I'm befuddled. That, that, that's the smartest thing I've ever heard you say. Well, you know, I, I've never understood, to be honest with you. How would you loan five hundred thousand dollars to somebody for two percent? No. How could that have been a good deal? Because you they know, sell that mor- they sell that mortgage to the time. but they sell that mortgage to the federal government. They get their two percent. They've got no skin in the game. The taxpayers, the backstop exactly. 
for that. Exactly. But when I'm sitting here just thinking as an ordinary smile, I'm thinking, who the heck would loan money at 2% <laughs> besides the government? Yeah, and besides the government. You know, you know, that's what I'm saying. I mean, who who logically ever thought that was good except that you put more money in the system? Nick, you know what you're saying? You're saying what I wake up every morning saying and go to bed every night saying. Something ain't right, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> is that fair enough? Yeah, I'm on that boat. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. I, I think it day after day, something's not right, and I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I met with a group yesterday in the real estate business. Uh, how do you feel? Fragile. How do you feel? Nervous. How do you feel? Anxious. Why? I mean, you know, sales are high. Um, income's up. Uh, you know, it's, I'm telling you that there's something, and, and Rev's heard me say this before, this potentially bleeds into every facet of the economy. It's not a housing bubble. It's not a dot-com bubble. It's not a, you know, an auto bubble. It, it's a debt bubble. Is that kind of why you're thinking that this meltdown, what it is, whatever it is and whenever it is, is going to be bad? Well, I mean, Rev, when we passed TARP, I mean, it was $900 billion. And I remember someone saying that, that I respect, that's nearly a trillion dollars. I mean, this was not 1908. I mean, this was 2008. And someone who I hold in high regard said, can we do that? Can we create out of thin air nearly a trillion dollars in liquidity and inject it in the name of stimulus and, and to save a sector of the economy? Forget to, I mean, uh, we can't say this on the air, but, but, but 800 billion ain't baby crap. Alongside what we've done since then, <laughs> we injected $6.3 trillion into the economy in about two and a half years. So when Nick says, I'm befuddled, I don't know what to make of it. The people that say, well, here's what's more likely to happen than not. In other words, when you turn to CNBC or Bloomberg or you read some economist, they have no precedent here. All they're doing is theorizing. I mean, that no, nobody knows what the other side of this looks like. I am extremely, extremely worried about what the consequences are for being as careless and reckless as we were. And, and a lot of this goes back to if Rev invests a million dollars in the dot-com industry and he loses, he speculated. When, when you allow something as essential as shelter they become an asset class that the majority of Americans begin speculating on, you're asking for trouble. You're just asking for trouble. If you believe it's normal for a home to increase in value 20% year to year, 30% year to year, 40% year to year, you, you, that, that's irrational. I mean, there is no under, there's no underlying data that says that's real. And I think there's going to be an enormous reset at some point in time, and I've asked this question before. Um, what would the world look like, and what would the cost of goods be if the government hadn't decided to go $33 trillion in debt? What if the federal government had to live within its means? What if you extracted a trillion and a half dollars a year out of the economy? That, that, that money doesn't exist. So, so forget the velocity of money. The money doesn't exist. Uh, private sector allocation, public, it doesn't matter. I mean, we can't spend a trillion dollars that we don't. What would the economy look like over the long run if you take that trillion dollars out? What does the economy, what does the housing economy look like if if the Fed's not allowed, if it was illegal for the Fed to own mortgage-backed securities, 
what would the housing market look like today? Th- those are questions that I don't think we want to know the answers to. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Good morning. You're on. Yeah, good morning. Um, this is about lobbying, the lobbyists. It sounds like, you know, Ken thinks that because corporations can lobby, that they do lobby. Um, I, I don't think they have a choice. In the, late, in the late 1980s, a small startup company started. By the, by the late 1990s, it had grown into a large corporation. Um, Congress noticed that this corporation had no lobbyists. They weren't lobbying Congress. Um, there were rumblings of an antitrust suit. A week later, almost two weeks later, in early 1998, Representative Billy Towson of Louisiana showed up at the CEO's office, put a lemon pie down, lemon meringue pie down on his desk, and said, this one's to go with the one that was thrown in your face last week. He says, I suggest you need friends in Washington. Friends in Washington. Um, the corporation, the desk was owned by Bill Gates. The corporation was Microsoft. And from that year on, Bill Gates had lobbyists. So I, I don't think, I mean, I think it's like the mafia. You know, you're going to play in all bar park. You're going to feed Washington or, or else. That's what I think happened. Bingo. The mo- the. The federal, thank you for the call. The federal government has turned in to something very similar to organized crime. I mean, they're they're in the shakedown business. They, yeah, so there's no doubt about it. I mean, go go back and watch the deposition of Bill Gates. It's 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 real interesting to me. I watched it in its entirety. There's a moment that Gates is being deposed, and he's basically. I mean, there's this moment, he's a nerdy billionaire, but there's this moment, he ain't as nerd as we thought. We, uh, anyway, that's a story for another day. <laughs> Bill Bill would be a um, uh, a bit of a unique nerd, shall we say. Um, one, one of the interesting interviews, Melinda Gates, I don't know if you've seen this or not, when Melinda Gates says to the media, she gave an interview, and she was talking about, uh, I think the person asked Melinda Gates, so Bill's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein made you uncomfortable. And she, I think her word was icky. I felt unbelievably icky when I was around him. And then she asked, this is a post-divorce. She said, you got her money. And then asked, um, you know, well, wh- what are your comments? And she said, and I quote, I'll let Bill speak for himself on his relationship to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Wow. Mm. I'll let my former husband speak for himself on his relationship. But th- there's a deposition on YouTube. You can watch it. And, um. And you know he's just—he's exactly right. There, there was a there was a moment in time that Bill Gates realized Microsoft was going to be a whole lot better off by having friends in Washington, whether he believed philosophically in lobbying government or, or not. And and you know Washington taught him a lesson. I mean, you know, you, you're going to you're going to kiss the ring one way or another, and Microsoft began kissing the ring, and that's kind of what you do to a mob boss, not not a senator or member of Congress. Take a break. Back in a few. It's actually the Fed's world. <laughs> we're all <laughs> we're all just in. living in the in the in the Fed's world. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Breeze. Good morning. You're on. You know, I know you remember this, kids. In 08, the builders were talking about they would go to the bank before all this mess, and the bankers would come out behind their desk, give them a hug, get them a cup of coffee. So you know, you see these signs, partnership with so and so bank. But then when everything went south, the bankers didn't even want to know. They wouldn't even talk to these builders. But 
But I tell you, I found something very, I have a question. We were talking to old Board and Log about the government intervening and, um, and how much pay a CEO gets. So what we're basically asking is a bunch of low-life scumbags in Washington to police a bunch of low-life scumbag corporations. I mean, do you see the do you see the paradox there? <laughs> I mean, it's like John Gotti being in charge of taking care of the of Chicago mob, you know, because they are they are that right. You talk about one organized crime group working with another organized crime group. These corporations are no better than the government. And what you've been talking about this last little bit between clients, I have not. So who calls the mess we're in? Corporations, big corporations, with their lobbying and their effect on Congress, give the uneven playing field, and the politicians, when they're spending their money, the government, and all that. So government and big corporations have got to set us in a situation, as you said, in the next four years, we might be better off with Democrats it, it, it be a president because the economy is going to tank so bad that everybody's going to be hurting. But I've not heard one congressman, one senator, one corporate leader, about one group of people sat down and said, hey, we'd really screw things up. Now let's fix it. Nobody on the Democrat side said it. Nobody on the Republican side said it. None of these corporations have said it. And who's, going to get, who's getting screwed at the end of the day? Us. They aren't. A great, a big recession. Did the shutdown hurt anybody in government? Did any of these big corporate CEOs lose their house in the Hamptons? No. It's just going to be you, I, Rev, Josh, the rest of us. We're the ones getting screwed. We're always the ones getting screwed. And we can sit there and do all the writing we want on the back of a napkin, tell the people how this was and this was and that was and that is and why this is why that. But ain't the damn soul said anything about how the hell we're going to fix it. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, the, the fundamental question I ask, and I guess this is when I go down the doom and gloom road, you can't, that there's no entity in the history of mankind that has been able to survive continually spending more than it has. I mean, that, that, that is a economic and financial reality. Every entity that has ever existed. Maybe America is exempt. I mean, maybe the American government is exempt from the, the realities of economic theories. I don't know of anybody ever being allowed to spend money they don't have forever. I mean, some companies get away with it. I mean, I would argue, Rev, that 20% of the companies in America today are in business because interest rates were so low. I mean, they're, 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 they're carrying costs, they're, they're finance charges, they borrowed money, and they were able to kind of um, get from one month to the next, get from one year to the next, because they're borrowing money at two, two and a half, three, three and a half percent. All of a sudden, the finance charge is seven, seven and a half percent, because when you borrow money, people expect to be paid interest for borrowing that money. And um, so, so when I, I'm basing a very complicated observation on a simple concept. We're spending a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. And we believe that we can do that forever. We must believe we can do it forever because nobody has offered any reasonable proposal to stop spending a trillion dollars that we don't have. And that's as bipartisan as it gets. The one thing the duopoly in Washington has agreed is spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have. This year, it's $2 trillion. I mean, we're going to spend $2 trillion trillion dollars this year that we don't have 
And, and we believe, I mean, that there are Americans that genuinely believe there's not a cost to pay at the end of wherever this ends or wherever this, this leads. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, uh, Ken, I think, uh, was it Ben Stein that paid, played the economics professor in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off? So maybe we can get your uh, best Ben Stein impersonation when you get done. But uh, <laughs> Bueller? Yeah, Bueller. Uh, but anyways, Monday, the first uh, student loan payments come uh, uh, due in, what, what, about three years or so? And um, I know we like to joke about student loans like it's a bunch of uh, 20-year-olds running around buying sneakers uh, with all this extra money they got floating around. But in actuality, it was 35 to 49-year-olds who own the who owe the most student loan debt. But they're paying it um, on time. The, the, the 70% of default deferment delayed payment are in the younger uh, borrowers. Yeah, but that doesn't include people that just didn't – that that are not paying because I'm not, because. I'm not, I'm not arguing. It's all about young people. And I'm certainly not picking on, I mean, I'm a boomer and I, I've admitted Jim, we screwed it up. But, I mean, we're, we're the ones that drove the debt. I, we, we were, we were gluttons for government, but, but the majority of older borrowers are paying or were paying in a timely fashion, even before we suspended payments, about 40% of borrowers were delayed default or in a deferred payment program. Yeah, but my, my point was going to be this, is that what did 35 to 49-year-olds go and do for the most part? They went out and bought the bigger house, and they bought the bigger car. So what effect is that um, now that new uh, $500, $700 student loan payment going to do to the housing market even further? I mean, I'm, I'm not – I don't know what we do about student loans, so I'm not suggesting either way um, what we do about it. But it, it's certainly another monkey wrench in this whole whole fiasco of the of the housing, the looming housing crisis. Um, so you know, it's just one more complication. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Well, I mean, it's money that was being allowed. I mean, you could treat it as discretionary income because your student debt was suspended. Um, I went back and looked total receipts of the U.S. government from 2000 to 2028 because I think 08 is kind of a, a watershed moment, right? I mean, 08, the world blew up. Government did its unique thing. I mean, I, I never lived through anything like that. I remember thinking to myself, so the government's going to bail the banks out? I mean, the banks made these mistakes. I mean, borrowers made mistakes. I mean, a lot of people made mistakes, but the government's going to spend a trillion dollars to bail the banks out. Here, here you go. You ready? This is what I really mean. It. You ready? Damn. I mean, you know, uh, th th that's that's the uh, emphatic profane uh, <laughs> word you know damn i mean they're, they're, yeah, okay make that makes sense well i mean let's go back to 2008 you know, you know how much the government collected in 2008 2.52 trillion dollars because i love these people that say the problem is the tax cuts i mean the problem is the government's not taking enough money in we, we've gone from 2.52 trillion dollars in 08 to in 2022 4. i'm sorry 23 4.9 trillion so the government was collecting when the world blew up 2.52 trillion today it's 4.9 trillion and some argue that there's too many tax cuts and the government's not getting enough money and that, to do that, what it, and that's not enough right that's an absurd insane argument to make void of any substance at all let's go to the phone jeff in florence good morning jeff hey good morning um when you talk about tax receipts uh, it, it's important to remember 
because um, you talk about revenue, um, what is the value of everything in the United States? Because isn't that really what it's based on? That's a percentage of GDP is what you're arguing. Well, in, in value. I mean, like, like Trump can buy a simple home in Florida, Mar-a-Lago, uh, for, what, I think $13 million and say it's worth $1.5 billion. So it's, you know, it's all relative to the value that's been created. Um, and that's a joke, by the way. I got yeah, the joke. Got it. So. And if it was funny. And no matter what that house is appraised at, no matter what that house is appraised at, he could have a Chinese business wire $250,000 to that address. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing is yeah. you, you can't develop it. It's It's a lost asset. So – um, I, I did want to talk to you about 2008 versus now, right? Because uh, you're you're in the home building. Do you find that I'm you not in the home trouble? building? I'm in the development. I mean, part part of what we do is look sure. for opportunities, and at times that does uh, it is residential, but it's majority commercial. When you say commercial apartments, uh, we've done that before. I mean, it, we, we've got a unique portfolio. I mean, what we do, Jeff, is look for what we consider to be unique opportunities. We, we don't say. And and we're we're kind of dabblers. I mean, we don't run a multi-million dollar development company. It's it's four guys that I've been business partners with for probably twenty or twenty-five years. And and as opportunities arise, we try to kind of put our heads together and say, can we do okay here? Can we make a little bit of of money here? And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Yeah, listen, I I, I came from the construction industry. You know, uh, I understand development. Um, one of the things you're seeing, but you're not having any problem getting a loan. Right? No, we're having to pay a lot more for it, though. <laughs> but you're getting it. No, we're getting right. loans, but we're having to pay a lot more for it. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't know. It, it, you'd have to be blind to look around Florence and not see all the apartments going up. Agree. Right. And, and I said and, earlier, I think we will be somewhat insulated from whatever comes next because we're a dest- I mean, we're a place that's net migration positive. Uh, we're, we're not right. the coast of South Carolina, but we are still growing as a state, and we're going to be somewhat insulated from the worst of what is to come. Right. I mean, like, the, that battery factory is not being built in China. Heck, it's going, being built here. Correct, and we'll all benefit from that. No doubt about it. You know, those electric those electric uh, scouts, uh, they're not going to be built in China. They're going to be built here, right? Correct. Okay. Is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing that the government's forcing auto manufacturers to build a certain car that's going to cost the UAW 40% of its labor force. I mean, that's a bad thing. There's winners and losers in every deal. Sure, sure. Right? You're right. not an auto worker, and I'm not. But if I were, I probably wouldn't be as enthusiastic about um, the, the government forced transition. But we can't say that the jobs are going to China, can we? We can't. You're right. I mean, they're coming to South Carolina. They're going to Alabama. They're going to Tennessee. They're going to places that it's economically viable for those vehicles to be built. That are largely governed by Republicans. Right. Well, and and I'll I'll just say this to you. Look, Nikki Haley was – I would have voted for her. She was a great governor. She did great things for South Carolina. I came from North Carolina. They lost all that business to South Carolina because their governor didn't play the right game. Nikki did. And and so Republicans aren't – bad people they're not evil people i disagree with them <laughs> she thinks <laughs> so generous of you but, uh, but today but we I, are now yeah, tomorrow yeah, we yeah, might yeah. be 
I'm, I'm not going to call them evil. You know, I'm not going to say that they're Satan worshipers. I mean, uh, you know, um, but I'll, I'll say this. Uh, we are going to be in a world of hurt. And, and globally, there's a recession uh, that is, uh, or a Great Depression, you know, and these resets happen. And when we talk about, you hear this term thrown around a lot, uh, distri- redistribution of wealth. When you hear that, what do you hear? Ah. Uh... It would take longer than I have. I mean, I, I'll accept that the Do government. The well, I mean, no, no. I mean, taxation is a redistribution of wealth. Marginal tax rates is a redistribution of wealth. Um, government programs. I mean, means tested and non-means tested are redistribution of wealth. I mean, the government. I mean, the government for the last hundred years since the New Deal. I mean, we've been in the redistribution of wealth. Right. So, so let me put it to you this way, though: Americans in the last two years have gotten poorer, right? But one class didn't, did they? The 1%. 2008, Americans suffered and got poorer, didn't they? But one class, the 1%, didn't. Why is that, Jeff? I mean, I don't disagree with you. Why do you believe, and to an even greater extreme, the one-tenth of 1%, the, the, the older, I mean, what I call the American oligarchs, I mean, they, they got even wealthier. Why, why, why do you believe that's the case? And I, I'm not going to Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Rothschilds are running the world. But I will tell you that our government is influenced, Citizens United, the BlackRock. You, you want to know why home prices aren't coming down? BlackRock look and Vanguard. Many, yeah, look at how many, and you mentioned it, you said it. I mean, we agree. Like, there should be, there. you talk about speculation of real estate? No, there is not going to be a real estate bubble if those companies keep buying up the American assets. But they will monopolize something as essential to shelter. But, but they're allowed to. Uh, and, written, and, but, but I think that's they, where they you and I agree. But isn't that kind of sort of where you and I agree? That that's not oh, in the best absolutely. interest of the American working class. It's not. Okay. That's why you see apartment rentals going crazy. That's why you see apartments being built everywhere. Because single-family homes an asset that should be, you know, um, something, uh, an American dream, the white picket fence, is being taken, the market's being manipulated in a way that makes it unattainable. Totally agree. And and and, and so uh, this isn't a Republican, this is not a Democrat thing. Um, the system is rigged, um, and, and not to say like, uh, uh, you know, conspiracy theory, uh, but we, the American people, are being taken for a ride, and we have been for for every cycle that this wealth bubble uh, pops. They're doing it on purpose. So, Thank you, Jeff. Well, way, and, and I, yeah. I, I wanted to extend an invitation to the next America First rally. You sound like an America Firster, <laughs> and I want to welcome you to the team. Um, I mean, I doubt you want the MAGA hat, but, but I certainly will um, add you to the list of, uh, you know, Trump maybes, N- not a Trump likely, oh, but, but, but I don't know about that. <laughs> Let's take a break. We'll you may have back. just ruined yeah, just day. We'll, we'll, we'll be back in just a couple of seconds, but that is the, the essential of America first. You know, Jeff doesn't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I think we identify some of the problems here today. And I want to say this, this has been a very stimulating show uh, for me. Hope it has for many of you take a break back in a few. 
It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? The main purpose of the federal government is to protect this nation against foreign adversaries. And you know what? That also means the southern border. These people are pouring into this country, and this society cannot handle all these people. It is going to break this government. You know, being a being naturally a conspiracy theorist, you know where I go? So, so, so the workers feel a little bit empowered, right? I mean, the Democrats have historically been on the side of workers. Now the America First movement's kind of, um, I mean, more times than not sided with the workers in America. So the, the allied forces of government and big business say, we'll teach you a lesson. We'll bring in even more unskilled workers than you could imagine. We'll skew and distort and manipulate the supply and demand of unskilled workers even more than, than ever. I mean, that's the conspiracy theory. The reality is the Democrats are just open borders. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of the mindset of a globalist. And, and I've just never understood um, the sovereignty of a nation's important. And this is not about organized immigration. It's about preservation of sovereignty and whether people assimilate to the American way or not. I don't want to say it's as simple as when in Rome, you know, you do as the Romans do. But I do think there has to be an element of that in, in, in the way we attempt to secure our border. Uh, assimilation and sovereignty are a big part of, um, of being an American. hear anybody talking about the election integrity i mean we talked about it for a while but um it ain't gonna matter who the republican candidate is if the democrats can continue to cheat manipulate um change the rules in midstream um ballot dump ballot harvest i mean all these things are unconstitutional because it disenfranchises my one vote well i mean i think we've done as good as we can do and by that, I mean Republicans, where they control the legislature. I mean, where you can pass laws. I understand the constitutionality of the issue. But, you know, there are some states that interpret the Constitution, have liberal judges who interpret the constitutionality or not of something a little differently than, than a lot of us would. I feel comfortable with Georgia. I mean, I really believe that Georgia has addressed some of the issues. Um, I feel okay with Arizona and Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, eh, it is what it is. It, it, you know, Kahaley said it better than I can say it. The Republican better be polling plus five in Pennsylvania or he loses by one. I mean, it's just, it's historic. It's not unexpected. It shouldn't catch us off guard. Uh, I do believe it was exacerbated and even more pronounced during COVID. Uh, chain of custody and unsolicited mail-in ballots. What was a big deal? But, um, but you know, the Democrats have done a better job at what I call precinct hustling than, than the Republicans have. And, I mean, Drew will be with us tomorrow, and we'll try to pin him down on exactly where we are in trying to catch up. I think he's admitted that they were caught off guard, that they're behind, they're trying to catch up. Um, but by what means? What are they doing to try and close the gap between, uh, I'll be fair here, you ready? Questionable ballots. I mean, I didn't say illegal ballots. I didn't say um, cheating-oriented ballots. That's your um, choice of words. But the, the the questionable ballots 
are, are, are largely skewed to assist or aid um, the Democrat. The Republicans have to close that gap in a meaningful fashion. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. I don't know that we'll offer a diploma or an advanced <laughs> degree from today's show. We probably should. And, um, and Josh, um, while you're looking for somewhere to sleep, um, tr- try and... <laughs> Ouch. Inside joke. <laughs> Try and um, see if we can find uh, maybe it's a certificate. An outside yeah, joke. a certificate. It is now <laughs> a certificate to commemorate those who have endured. I, I earned mine this entire today. Four hours. I earned mine. You feel like you learned anything? Sure, I did. Yeah, I actually enjoyed it. It was yeah. great. It was, great a, it was a different sort of conservative talk radio show. Thanks to the listeners yeah, too. No question about it. Great, the, great the callers. callers from our listeners. Tell you, hey, we'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>